You can't just keep putting these alongside cryptozoology. We have too many people saying that these things are cryptids when they're not. Mothman is not on the verge of discovery. It's not something unknown <laughs> to science. It's not something that's biologically possible. It doesn't sit in the woods and eat rabbits. It's something that is connected to the human psyche. Ladies and gentlemen, I just think this all comes around in circles and trends, and the tuba gabra has got very similar relatives all across the world, but I don't think they're flesh and blood. Um, I think maybe you often ask the question, does a certain creature still appear if there's nobody there to see it? And maybe the answer to that is no. So in other words, it depends on the individual to actually see it, almost like a holographic projection. I almost refuse to believe, despite believing in some strange stuff and having some weird experiences, I don't believe that little green men or whoever are coming into people's bedrooms from flying craft and zipping across the skies from other planets. I think there's something going on here with us that we don't understand. If this had happened in West Virginia, it would have been classed as Mothman. It was black, it had red eyes, and it floated above a gate. But in London, it was classed as a vampire, because that's what the newspapers called it. Maybe the Loch Ness Monster is a tulpa as well, but if you start telling that to people, they'll start slagging you off, because they're saying, well, I've seen it, I know what I saw was real. But then how do we define real in that sense? And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. We are long overdue for a new installment of the program. I apologize for the delay. Always seems like the end of the summer takes me down a notch and slows me down. But we're back with another edition of BOA Audio, and it is a tremendous program, my friends. We are going to be examining the nebulous area between cryptids and the paranormal as we welcome Neil Arnold, author of the book Monster, the A to Z of Zooform Phenomena. And to give you sort of a thumbnail on what this Zooform concept is, a zoo form is essentially a social construct, if you will, a mental projection, a tulpa of sorts. And Neil believes that these zoo forms can account for a myriad of creatures that often get confused with real-life cryptids. So over the course of the conversation, we're going to be talking about the zoo form theory, what some of the potential candidates are for the zoo form phenomena, Creatures like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, Mothman, and the Highgate Vampire, as well as UFOs, Men in Black, and Alien Abductions. We'll look at all of these different genres, creatures, and stories, and try and find out where they fit into the zoo form milieu. Along the way, we'll also be talking about the Big Cat Phenomenon in England, which is an area that Neil Arnold has spent a tremendous amount of time investigating. Given that this zooform concept really requires quite a bit of unpacking, this is definitely a 
jam session edition of the program, as I pretty much throw a whole bunch of different scenarios, genres, stories, creatures at Neil Arnold and get his take on where they fit into the zoo form classification. And we also get into what may be behind all of this, what may be fueling zoo form phenomena, and try to get to the bottom of really what drives the entire enigma. So, altogether, it is a mind-bending edition of the program, and it is definitely one that will have you looking at numerous paranormal mysteries from an entirely different angle as we delve into the realm of the zoo forms with Neil Arnold. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Neil Arnold, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Neil Arnold is a full-time folklorist, monster hunter, author, and speaker. He has written several books, many articles, and conducts talks on his investigations. A member of the Center for Fordian Zoology, Neil Arnold has been consulted widely for television and radio, and his 2007 book, Monster, the A to Z of Zooform Phenomena, was voted the Fortean Zoology Book of the Year. Additionally, he is the author of Mystery Animals of the British Isles, Kent, Mystery Animals of the British Isles, London, Paranormal London, and Shadows in the Sky, The Haunted Airways of Britain. His website is www.zooform.blogspot.com, and you spell zooform pretty much how it sounds, Z-O-O-F-O-R-M. So altogether, it's zooform.blogspot.com. Check it out. And with all that said, let's get down to business, my friends, and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on March 20th, 2012. Neil Arnold, talking about zooform phenomena on BOA Audio Season 7. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. I guess I'll warn you up front ahead of time. My voice is uh, craggly here as we tape this conversation, but my mind is sharp, and I am really looking forward to what you are about to hear. Our guest is Neil Arnold. He's the author of a number of books. New one coming out soon, Shadows in the Sky, The Haunted Airways of Britain. He's also really well known as a big cat researcher, and he's dubbed a monster hunter, and I think that's Really, I, I hesitate to call him a cryptozoologist because he's really sort of done a great job of looking at this nebulous world between cryptozoology and the paranormal and these creatures he calls zoo forms, which are sort of like these almost elemental type beings, if you will, or creatures. And we're going to talk all about that. So we're really going to delve into some strange and unusual stuff. And it's been a long time coming. I've been really Looking forward to talking to Neil for quite a while. So save me from myself here in this in this twisted voice, Neil. So welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing, okay? I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, we usually start out with the bio, the background. You know, who is Neil Arnold? I know you've had quite a history looking at monsters and, and sort of the weird world of uh cryptozoology. Again, I, I hesitate to use that, but we'll get into all sort of the, the, the nomenclature of it all. But tell us who Neil Arnold is and give us some of your bio and background. Uh, basically, I'm, I'm 37 years old. Um, I class myself as what would be deemed a full-time monster hunter. Uh, there's not many of us that go around the countryside anywhere in the world actually kind of doing it full-time. Um, I just decided 
literally when I was about nine that I wanted to be a monster hunter and eventually managed to do it, mainly by sort of writing books, giving lectures, and basically studying a lot of subjects that I'm finding that I've often been ignored. Um, but of course I grew up on sort of a diet of the Yeti, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, all the classic stuff that got people sort of into it originally with films, uh, magazines and sort of documentaries. But I just found that there was too much um, that was being ignored that I needed to write about. And so I began kind of writing articles when I was very, very young, sort of early teens. Began going out looking for strange creatures in Britain, creatures that people had never heard of before. Um, had my first book published in 2007, which is called Monster, the A to Z of Zoo Form Phenomena. And I pretty much found it was a unique book covering kind of creatures that were being classed as cryptozoology, which but simply weren't. For me, they just weren't cryptozoological. They weren't cryptids. They weren't creatures away in discovery. They were not paranormal. I don't like the term paranormal, but they were clearly something that wasn't flesh and blood. And I also tend to go around and investigate sightings of what we call big cats in the UK regarding sightings of exotic animals that shouldn't be there. And I'm basically the only full-time researcher in the UK that does that as well. So I'm kind of a, a pretty busy guy um, and just tend to sort of like le you know, lecturing, but I just enjoy what I do as well. It's a privilege to be able to do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's amazing. There's so many stories over there, just so many weird things. And you, you, you seem to have like tapped into this vein of the zoo form. I guess let's talk about that. Let's sort of like tackle the nomenclature of all this so we so we can kind of catch people up to speed. Like you're talking about when you say zoo form, I know that term came from uh, John Downs. Yeah. Sort of like these, these, like you said, you know, these things that aren't flesh and blood creatures, but we don't quite know what they are. Yeah, well, zoo form is, was just a term created because there was never any kind of categorization or section for these creatures to be put into. You know, Loch Ness, there could be a creature in there, but if there is, it's probably something like a big sturgeon. Bigfoot could be a creature because there seems to be stuff elsewhere across the world, Orang Pendek in Sumatra, the Yowie in Australia, the Yeti. But there's this other host of creatures that just do not live in the woods. Although we see them in the woods, it's as if our mind puts them there. And I'm on about creatures such as the Mothman, the Monkey Man of India, the Goat Man of Texas the bunny man of sort of um, Virginia, these sort of creatures that just can't, they just can't exist in any type of reality. People definitely see them, but of course people also definitely see ghosts to an extent. But I think there needs to be some type of bridging the gap, um, looking at things such as hellhounds, you know, the phantom black dogs. They're not flesh and blood creatures. A lot of these things are tribal. Some of these things are folklore. Some of these things are misinterpretations or hoaxes. But if you believe something enough, it can actually start to happen. And I think that's certainly the case of Mothman, which to me is simply like a, a creature that's been born from legends we had many years ago, of harpies and that sort of thing, Clash of the Titans and Sinbad sort of stuff. But Zooform is certainly a, a category to put these things into because they're not cryptozoological. Right, right, exactly. And it's a great, you know, kudos to John and you for sort of like popularizing this because we need it a term to sort of lump these things into because they too often do get pushed into cryptozoology and yeah, nobody wins when that happens. No, I think you got the term zooform was just a, you know, something that John Downs uh, kind of made up simply because all it describes is sort of demonic paranormal style entities with animal characteristics. So we're talking about sort of dog-headed men. Uh, we still have so-called signs of centaurs and satyrs. 
but we, we of course call them goat man nowadays so I think owl man was another one in the UK and I think you can't just keep putting these alongside cryptozoology we have too many people saying that these things are cryptids when they're not Mothman is not on the verge of discovery it's not something unknown <laughs> to science it's not something that's biologically possible it doesn't sit in the woods and eat rabbits it's something that is connected to the human psyche whether it's in a similar way that a poltergeist is whatever we want to call them I'm not a big believer in ghosts, but I believe that lots of people do see very, very bizarre things. And I think monsters, along the same lines of type of werewolves, we still have modern-day werewolves. But, of course, it's moving on from the werewolves of what we knew when we grew up as kids. Well, you're, it sounds like you're suggesting that they're more of a like a tulpa than, than any sort of... Uh, I was going to ask if you thought maybe there was an interdimensional element to this. So I like Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think that these things are certainly could be... They could be connected more to the the area they belong to or um, that person that sees them. You know, I think Mothman, he never looked like a moth whatsoever. Um, they gave him that name. The newspapers gave him that name. The media created it. And the more the media put it out there the more people started to see it and I think in some instances people might have seen large birds but then of course you had the men in black that were seen around the same time the UFOs alleged cattle mutilation so it's all kind of we like to think it's all connected but I think a lot of these are more more connected to the actual individual that sees them rather than any type of sort of you know woodland creature and I think we've always had fairies and elves and stuff like that but these things have kind of died out over the years so we need other things to replace them Absolutely, yeah, and, and and you know, just because we're thinking here and saying that maybe it comes from the mind doesn't make them any less fantastic. No, no, no. <laughs> you know, like if they say, you know, if somebody says to you, oh, it's all in the mind," that doesn't mean you're being skeptical. What it's saying is the mind is a very powerful thing. When exactly. You sleep, when you sleep, bizarre things can happen. I think legends of vampires have come from this sort of thing. And another phenomenon which I also would like to connect to this sort of thing is alien abduction. I don't think. There are aliens, but I think that there are, there are aliens in the same way that we have sleep paralysis, old hag attacks, things that come in the night. I think it's all deeply connected. I think alien abduction is a modern-day version of the old hag. But, of course, then we're going off on a tangent, and, of course, you can end up sort of going round and round in circles. Right, right. Well, that's the difficulty, too, about all this. You know, it's like we're saying a product of the mind, uh, interdimensional. It could be all the above. It could be some kind of perfect maelstrom of these things have to combine for this to happen. I mean, but Mm -hmm. there definitely seems to be some kind of nebulous nature to these things. You know, like I was looking over some of the stuff. It seems like it, it, you know, name the animal. It's got some kind of phantom counterpart. And exactly. that suggests that there's something going on here that, that yeah, we and these things have always been with us. They've always been, you know, when the sort of the, the you know the Native American Indians they spoke about strange creatures. Now, you know, sea serpents and stuff like that. I, I don't tend to think of zoo forms. I think there's a good possibility we could have a sea serpent because we've got the giant squid that's never fully been sort of studied. I think Bigfoot. It seems to be leaving very large prints, although we've not don't seem to be finding any any feces or a body at the moment. There's a good suggestion that you know there was a few zoologists that have actually seen orang pendek in Sumatra. Now, of course, people could say, well, we've seen Mothman as well, but Mothman doesn't leave prints. Mothman, there's no hair samples from Mothman. There's no sheep kills from Mothman. I think that Mothman and the Jersey Devil are a sum of many parts, but I think Bigfoot could very much be, be a cryptid. It's it could certainly a creature that could be bordering on sort of, you know, being discovered at some point. Right, right. Well, you get a, the magic word there in a sense because uh, what I was just thinking of is 
is a creature that sort of inhabits the very border between these two worlds we're talking about, and that's the chupacabra, because it's like, it could go either way, in a sense. You're not quite, I'm not sure where I would put that, and I know you've done a lot of looking at the creature, so what, yeah, what do you think? I don't, I don't think there's any such thing as a chupacabra whatsoever. Um, I don't think it's ever existed. I think I did a an article um, a few years ago for a, um, I think it's a Canadian publication called Dark Law. I think they're on about the fifth or sixth volume. I did a piece in there called The Goat Sucker Family Tree because I was amazed at how the chupacabra has actually been seen in parts of South America for many, many years. And this is going back 50, 60 years before Puerto Rico. And it's interesting that, you know, in Texas they see these weird dogs and they class them as goat suckers, but they're not. It's down to interpretation. Right. I think that the chupacabra is a sum of several parts. Now, Jonathan Downs, who's like a, a faulty and researcher um, and also a monster hunter, has kind of looked into this um, in his book. Um, he wrote a book about it, um, Island of Paradise, and he actually looks at the possibility that there is a, a mix between an, an, a natural species that people don't understand, anything from porcupines, mongoose, the way they kill, and the way they drain the blood, uh, predatory cats, and very similarly, it reminds me of the Jersey Devil. People have sort of got their own interpretation. People are saying there's this little winged creature, but I find it amazing how the chupacabra is very slowly dying away now. Nobody's really seeing it. People were connecting it to UFOs at the time. Government experiments gone wrong, and we always do that. We've done that with the Montauk monster that was found a few years ago on the beach. We've done it with Goatman. I just think this all comes around in circles and trends, and the chupacabra has got very similar relatives all across the world, but I don't think they're flesh and blood. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, maybe like a misidentification of uh, something else going on too, right? Well, yeah, in in a sense, you could have a, an animal that people don't understand, like an escape pet. Like in, in the UK, bizarrely, we have legends of dragons that go back four to 500 years. Oh, wow. Now, the dragon, for me, is the most perfect zoo form creature on Earth because it's never, ever existed. And yet, why is it so strong in our culture? In, uh, you know, sort of Asia, uh, China, Japan, there is dragon stories. But we don't have dragons. A dragon cannot exist. So, in one sense, a dragon is a very strong folkloric creature, but the next minute, a dragon could then become the Jersey Devil. So I think we've always had these things. They're archetypes to an extent, but we certainly can't have dragons living in the British woods. But in folklore, they exist. That is really strange. I never really kind of considered that, but it is sort of weird that, like, in the, you know, in human history, dragons play such an important role, but they really don't, like you say, they don't exist. It's just, that's a strange sort of, Yeah, most of the reports we've got from Britain seem to describe large snakes. Um, And certainly back in medieval times, if people had an unusual pet, something like a crocodile that had escaped, we may not have understood what that was. I think that the chupacabra is a similar style thing. Now, I'm not saying that people aren't seeing this thing. Some people are saying it's sort of got glowing red eyes and it levitates. But these things, again, have been all sort of through folklore. You know, lots of South America has had this sort of thing actually taking place for many, many years. Um, they've had these sort of winged dogs in Chile in 2004, um, and in other parts, sort of, there's this thing called a Shivato, which is from Chile, which goes back apparently to the 1800s of these bizarre cave-dwelling shaggy-haired creatures. So maybe there's always been a chupacabra, maybe there's always been a mothman, but we like to give it these names so we can categorise it.
Yeah, like a modern twist on it almost. Yeah, we have to call it a Mothman. It sounds like a comic book anti-hero, but there was no Mothman before the 1960s, even though there were signs before the 1960s of this type of creature. But at the time, it wasn't a Mothman, but nowadays everything that's like it will be a Mothman. <laughs> exactly <laughs> like the uh, like the Texas Chupacabra. Exactly, and obviously the Loch Ness Monster as well. You know, I think what's in Loch Ness is a... A large sturgeon, but they can't call it the Loch Ness Sturgeon because it doesn't sell T-shirts. <laughs> so it's simply all about getting people there. And once, and again, once you believe it enough, it starts to actually happen. And that's where the idea of tulpas comes from, I believe. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, well, that definitely seems because there, there, there are sort of these, you know, these these waves of things, and it does sort of yep. tie into the idea of of. Uh, of the topification of these creatures, you know, the, you know, a couple of news reports, sort of like the werewolves in Wisconsin, and yep, it feeds it, yeah, it it stronger. Um, you can kind of give it some type of energy, a bit like um, children with so-called poltergeist sort of phenomena. They unintentionally feed it, but I think that certain uh, states of mind can feed this thing. And once somebody kind of makes a sketch of the Chupacabra, like they did in the nineties, once it appeared on the internet, everybody started seeing that. But before that, nobody did. It's interesting with Loch Ness. Is the Loch Ness a zoo form? Because people no longer see a creature with a long neck. All they see is a black hump in the water, which suggests a sturgeon. But going back to about the 1940s, 50s, people described a long neck, mainly because somebody did actually put a, a photograph out there of a long neck creature, even though it turned out to be a hoax. So it's amazing what people see when it doesn't exist. Now... What do you think it says to the fact that a lot of these legends and stuff, they're, they're kind of sinister? I mean, do you think this, this, this tulpification sort of comes up from a, from a place of fear or a place of uh, confusion or something like that? Because you don't really hear a lot of, like, I don't know, positive mythological <laughs> uh, no, I think that there's not really, and maybe fairies, but I suppose fairies used to be described as being quite mischievous. Um, and we'd have sort of bogarts, bogies, and goblins, and hobgoblins, and elves, and sprites. I just think that it's our need for monsters. Maybe it's our need for fear. Um, I'm pretty sure that there are some quite funny monsters. When I did the, my monster book, um, which is like an encyclopedia, there's some hilarious uh, monsters in there which clearly can't exist. And some of these are, are quite comical. Um, there's one called the Zulu Basket Monster, which is said to kind of just look like a basket on legs. Um, but... <laughs> Again, it's just down to our own... We love monsters. Um, I've always loved monsters. I desperately want there to be monsters, so we need to put them out there, but I suppose a lot of people kind of fear them. Places like Loch Ness um, and, you know, the Pine Barrens of New Jersey are places that, when they're at night, it's very, very dark. Uh, Loch Ness is sort of, you know, 800 foot deep, 26 miles long. So these they harbour sort of creatures... These places are always sort of instill fear within us, and most monsters are scary anyway, vampires and werewolves and zombies, so we need that fear of the unknown. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, definitely. It comes from, you know, we're, we perceive ourselves to be the top of the of the food chain, you know, the apex predators of the planet, yeah. so I guess we have to have something to fear, whether it's aliens or werewolves or vampires, you know, it's got to be something that takes us down a peg, even if it's something we create ourselves. Yeah, and the big problem with it, of course, is, is that when we, we can't grasp it, we either dismiss it or we relegate it to folklore, which is why, sadly, we've kind of conquered the earth. You know, however much magical creatures we've still got in the vast forests of the world, we still have to categorize them. You know, we, we don't like huge snakes, so we either have to kill them 
or make sure we put them in our pli- in their place. But when we start talking about vampires and Mothman and Bigfoot, it annoys people, it annoys science, because it kind of, it's almost like admitting defeat that there's something out there we can't control. Yeah, exactly. I've read a lot of your work, I've read a lot of your interviews and stuff, and uh, obviously you're really well known for the big cat research, and I, I really, I, I find it commendable that you take a really strong stance on this thing, that, that this isn't some mystery or anything like that, that it's just, it's just a, a, a population of uh, very large cats that are that are in the UK area. Yeah, and it's happening all over the world. You know, the United States, people are seeing very large black cats. The problem is, is it's very, very complicated. Now, I collected my first um, report of a big cat in the UK when I was about nine. Uh, cause I'm 37 now, and I decided back then in the 80s we had the Beast of Exmoor and all this sort of stuff, which sounds like sort of Hans the Baskervilles kind of stuff. And it was a great mystery, but I've basically just decided this isn't a mystery. Why are people still going on? You know, there's people out there that are saying these animals are cryptids. Well, it's just an animal in a place it shouldn't be that doesn't make it a cryptid. It simply makes it a non-native animal. It's just, and they're obviously very comfortable. The interesting thing, of course, we get these out-of-place cats in Australia as well. There's been reports from Italy and Denmark and France, like I say, the United States, but too many people are making this a mystery, and sadly, there are researchers out there who don't like me. They don't like what I say because I'm very honest, but we've got to stop lumping this alongside UFOs, monsters, and ghosts. It's just several species of cats that mainly are existing because in the 1960s, London was pretty swinging, um, and you could buy these animals. And there are reports going back several hundred years, which would also be explained by menageries and travelling zoos and things like that. There is no mystery as to why there's large cats out there, and I sort of give lectures to let people know that there's lots of evidence for these animals. But sadly, you kind of get sick to death of, of banging your head against a brick wall. There's still people refusing to accept they exist. There's other people saying that they're kind of prehistoric survivors, other people saying they're demons, and yet this is a mystery we don't need to create to an extent, so but, you know, everybody needs a mystery, I suppose but in this case, we just do not need it, it kind of hampers the research. Right, right, well it's not just the researchers though, it's like the main, doesn't the mainstream over there, like the media and stuff, don't they kind of regard it as like a paranormal thing and not not just a, um, a, a weapon? They just, love the, they just love the beastly headlines, the beast of this the beast of that <laughs> um, it just always sounds good, and the sad thing is, is that most of the people that can't do the research are what we would class as a little bit like some of the UFO spotters in the 1970s going out with their sort of camouflage gear and their cuddly toy panthers and making it a little bit of a, of a gimmick, I suppose. Um, the problem is, like I say, is you've got to do, with any of this sort of research, you've got to look at the consistency. And if people start saying they've seen a tiger, you can only laugh at it. We don't have lions and tigers in the UK whatsoever. If an animal escapes a zoo, especially a lion or a tiger, it's often shot dead or recaptured. So the term big cat is a bit confusing because the only large animal we've got in the UK that would be deemed a big cat scientifically is what we call a black leopard or what people like to call a panther. Now, it's interesting that in the United States, they also see black cats and people in the United States believe they are black cougars or black mountain lions, but this is also very confusing because a melanistic mountain lion wouldn't be jet black and it would still have a, a lighter underside. So I think in the US they're still seeing black leopards as well. But I do find it interesting in the United States that there's probably more people own Bengal tigers than there are Bengal tigers in the wild. 
So I think it still goes to show that people do keep large exotic animals. Right, right. That's the yeah, that's that's another interesting kind of point. Yeah, because there's like this connection where it's like some of this ownership may be very surreptitious. So, <laughs> well, a lot of drug dealers tend to um, have Bengal tigers in the United States, and in the 1960s in the UK, you had a lot of people, whether it was sort of drug dealers or thing, anybody with a bit of wanted a bit of status symbol would literally walk around their street with their pet mountain lion or their pet leopard. But, of course, it got so bad, which is what people don't realise, that people were buying these animals or getting these illegally so frequently. In the 70s in the UK, we did have the Dangerous Wild Animals Act introduced, and people just thought, well, we're not going to pay for our animals, so they just let them go. Simple as that. But, of course, you've got to have enough black leopard, enough black puma, enough puma and enough lynx, because they, these animals won't mate with each other. So there's got to be enough animals for them to be out there to make the viable populations and that's what's happened we're seeing generations from generations from back then interesting interesting very strange yeah it's uh i do find the black cats interesting and i've always sort of been on the same opinion talk a little bit about these sort of menageries that were around in victorian times i, I find them pretty interesting because yeah but these stories are absolutely amazing the problem is again with a lot of the research today is that a lot of so-called big cat researchers go out they lay up in a field for 20 minutes they don't see nothing they get bored they go home <laughs> now i just decided that and this is a problem now it's not a fault in these people but of course like anything you can go out looking for bigfoot in the United States, but you only got a certain amount of time. Um, you can't always get the funding. And, of course, humans are pretty terrible when it comes to hunting. We can't see in the dark. We get cold. We get too hot. You know, we, we can't track an animal that is so elusive. We try and set cameras up everywhere, but these animals aren't stupid. But a lot of these things, like I say, go back a long, long way. Um, in the UK, like I say, you did have two, three hundred years ago travelling menageries, People such as Barnum, as well in the United States, would go around with their so-called alleged sea serpents and mermaids, and they would just fool the public into sort of coming to see these great exhibitions, and people would pay because, of course, they couldn't afford to go across the other side of the world to see a so-called leopard, so they'd go to the local circus. But there are documented facts which prove that animals did escape. Um, I've got hundreds of reports all over the world of animals escaping from menageries, but usually if an animal is lacking exercise, used to be in hand reared, it will often sort of die, especially if large snakes escape in the UK and things like that. Yeah. But certainly large cats, I've got reports going back to the 1500s in the UK of large cats that have been seen in the woods. So it's something that we've had a long, long time. Even when the Romans first came over centuries ago, they had leopards and lions. So if any of these would have escaped, there would have been no newspapers back at the time to report them. But I'm not saying that what we're seeing today are offspring from then, but we've certainly had explosions over the last 200 years of influxes of animals in the countryside. And we've also got wild boar back. We've got wallabies, which, of course, are marsupials from Australia. We've got loads of wallabies in the UK. We've got strange creatures like parakeets, which has now established themselves. So there's certain animals can survive here. Yeah, well, it reminds me of... Uh... I don't know if you heard the story. I think it happened like in December maybe. Uh, where like this guy here in America, he had like a zoo of some kind and he went crazy and killed someone and then let all the animals out. Right, okay. Yeah, and it was like tigers and stuff running around in, in the cities and stuff. It was, it was weird. Yeah. So. It's amazing what you, what people, we, we still get it here on sort of people in little houses. People find crocodiles that are six foot long in their bath. 
and things like that. It's, there's always some weirdo out there that would keep one of these animals. So there's still people nowadays keeping leopard in the middle of London. Only about eight or nine years ago, a lynx was found, and nobody knows where that came from. So and then it, and you know the authorities still say these animals don't exist, even though they caught a lynx in somebody's back garden. <laughs> and that doesn't make sense to me. It's like Mike Tyson in that movie, The Hangover with, with the Tiger. Exactly. The trouble is, look, say in the UK, we get reports of, in the 1960s, it all began with the so-called Surrey Puma legend, and yet most of the sightings at the time, people described a lioness because they didn't know what a puma looked like, because most people think pumas are black. They get so confused. A lot of people think a panther is a species of animal, and there's no such thing as a panther. So it gets quite confusing for people if they don't know what they're seeing. So the Surrey Puma was probably just an escaped pet from a collection owned by some rich person, but they were describing it as a lioness report. Sadly, we still get reports of lions and tigers, and it kind of makes my sort of research look inadequate because some idiot somewhere else is saying there's lions and tigers on the loose, and it's in the UK that just doesn't happen. Yeah, exactly. Well, Especially as established species, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, I find it interesting, too, uh, one of your more recent books here, The Mystery Animals of the British Isles, London, just, yep. uh, you know, you imagine that, like, a city like London, I, I lived in London for about six months back in the year 2000, to imagine that there's mystery animals running around London is, is, is like, almost unbelievable to me, but also, when you think about just the vastness of it, yeah. it, it does have potential there. Definitely. Well, I, the reason I did the book is because um, I belong to the Centre for Fortean Zoology, which is run by Jonathan Downs, and he wanted to do a series of books based on each... English County, and in 2009, I did an absolutely huge book called Mystery Animals of the British Isles, Kent, and then I thought, I've got to do the London one, because nobody else has ever written a book like this before. We get folklore books in the UK, but there's far more better book selection in, in the United States, because over here, we tend to get a lot of ghostly stuff. There's nothing really about mystery animals. So to do the book was a, was a real sort of um, a huge buzz, and I was amazed at the amount of, you know, the book is sort of 400 pages. Uh, sort of almost 200,000 words and I was just amazed at the amount of stories of right up until the modern day of strange creatures that are seen but what people don't realise of course is that London isn't just about fog there is lots of green belts on the outskirts there's lots of wooded areas there's lots of heathlands there's ponds lakes and rivers so London could certainly hide small animals and it certainly tends to hide on the outskirts exotic cats as well Interesting, interesting. Well, I know there's a story in the book about, like, a Bigfoot in the London Underground. <laughs> I think that's where we start going back into zoo form again, because it's <laughs> just a bizarre story. Because, But what people don't realise is that London is absolutely ancient. Much yeah. of the British Isles is ancient. So what energies it harbours is bizarre. Just because we put a shopping mall somewhere doesn't mean that things can't still be seen there because it's the ground that it's been built on. So I think that... We have had reports in the London Underground of a strange sort of hair-covered creature, but there's no way we've got Sasquatch <laughs> in the UK. But people do see in the, in the UK strange creatures. A couple of years ago, Nick Redfern, um, who lives in Texas, he did a book called uh, Man Monkey, and that described several, several creatures in the area where he used to live in the north of England of a strange monkey-like creature. So maybe these are demonic, maybe these are medieval type of spirits like the wood or a wild man of the woods not sure but maybe again it's to do with human psyche yeah well uh i know i've talked to nick a lot about the bigfoot in the uk and he seems to think uh 
that you know that that the it's just too small to really sustain that kind of population, and that maybe that's... It's impossible. It's, it's not just too small. It's actually biologically impossible because the UK has never had an ape species. The closest we've got is sort of the Barbary ape. It's just not it's just not viable at all. You know, in the United States, there's a possibility that Bigfoot is something like an upright, unknown species of, you know, walking ape type of thing. It could be like Gigantopithecus. Certainly in Sumatra, the jungles, they have got this orang pendek, which I think will be an amazing discovery, and I think it's on the verge of happening, because two zoologists have seen this creature. But in the UK, we've got forest, but we can't have a Bigfoot. We don't have Bigfoot prints or anything like that. I think what people are seeing are some type of um, what we'd like to call a paranormal sort of entity. I know definitely uh, Nick Redfern's doing a book at the moment, called Wild Man, and it's about British Bigfoot signs, and you'll find that a lot of it tends to be of a more spectral nature. Yeah, yeah, because it just seems too weird uh, that it would be there. But I, I, I'm always flummoxed by Bigfoot. I consider it my nemesis of sorts because I just can't quite figure it out. I, is it interdimensional? Is it like a tulpa like we've been talking about? Is it flesh and blood? I think it might somehow be all of them. I'm not sure yet. It's confusing. The problem is with Bigfoot is that it's still leaving prints. So we've got to, I think we've got to look at it consistently. We've got to first think, right, what you'll find with a lot of zoo form stuff is that when something's a zoo form, people don't often see it. And if they do, it's little sporadic sort of spurts and trends. Yeah. And then it dies out, like Mothman. But Bigfoot has been seen for about 200 years, I believe, in the United States. So it's got, I think the reason why it tends to confuse people is the fact that people start thinking, can there really be an upright walking something creature that resembles man roaming around these woods? And I think the answer to that is yes. I think that if there's a, if there's a yeti, which I believe there is, which wouldn't really be that much of a mystery, if you're going, if we keep going back to the orang pendek of Sumatra, that looks to be like a, an ape that's about five to six foot tall, golden hair, very similar to the Yeti, which has got dark fur, although bizarrely most people seem to think that the Yeti is white, which I find absolutely bizarre. <laughs> but Bigfoot could well be some type of upright walking ape. The problem is if we start disputing that, then immediately we relegate it to folklore, then we start saying that they disappear, we start saying that they're immune to bullets, um, they're connected to UFOs, and then it just completely clouds it. So I think we've got to look at the consistent reports and then get as much evidence as we can, which, of course, at the moment, the footprints, which suggest it's a real creature. Right, right, and the hair and the scat and that kind of stuff. Yeah, they, people. What, what I do find very annoying is when people say, why don't we ever find a dead one? Now, that's actually quite a naive attitude because it's very rare, if at all, do people ever find the bodies of gorillas or chimpanzees in the wild. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is the mountain gorilla was only discovered over, say, 100 or so years ago. And that is when the tribes used to describe seeing an, an ape or a creature that used to bash its chest. And science dismissed it. So, really, the mountain gorilla is almost our Bigfoot, but only 100 years ago. So, why is it such a mystery that there could be something slightly bigger than that, but that can walk upright? Where I am in Kent, we've got a zoo, and there is a silverback gorilla there, which has been watching humans for the last three years and is now able to walk comfortably upright. So I think this is an intelligent animal. There's not many left, 
and I think we've got to look at it, try and look at it scientifically, and then if all else fails, we can think, okay, it's some type of spectral creature, but too many people see it for it to be a ghost or whatever. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And the Patterson film is either a complete hoax or it's real. If it's real, then that can't be a ghost or demon or whatever. I think the Patterson film is real. Okay, interesting. All right. Now, I find it interesting, too, that, you know, it must be kind of a a difficult road to go down for you as a researcher because, like, mm-hmm. when you're when you're looking at these zooform things, you know, we're talking about something that could be a projection of the mind or interdimensional and mm-hmm. isn't leaving behind a lot of evidence. So, like, what do you have to do, really, to sort of, like, chronicle the stories that these people share and, and try and come to some kind of conclusions or find some yeah, uh, well, similarities. Yeah, it, is, it is a nightmare, basically. It's, it's, with all <laughs> due respect, it's a bit like it's a bit like ghost hunters. You know, some ghost hunters are fine, but there's no real evidence for ghosts. The, the thing that frustrates me at the moment is, is again, it comes with trends. At the moment, everybody's seeing these orbs in the last sort of ten, fifteen years, and saying that they're spirit forms. You know, I remember when I was a kid. My dad used to tell me ghost stories, and he would always tell me ghost stories about sort of dank old castles with a ghostly knight said to hold his head under his arm. We don't get that anymore. Why is it always orbs and stuff like that? And I think it seems to move with the times. And I think, again, it's the same with zoo forms. You know, you get one of the most of these reports are one-offs, and I just decided many, many years ago I'd write a, a really small article on these zoo forms and suddenly I ended up with a hundred page little booklet which I called Alien Zoo at the time and then it ended up a 400 page book called Monster (laughs) and I just thought there are so many creatures that whether they're more folkloric or they're spiritual from Japan, China, Russia or parts of Africa, Australia, the United States they're clearly not real but Somebody somewhere has seen some, something, and not everybody's mad, not everybody's drunk or on drugs, but what's it to do with that type of individual? Um, I think maybe you often ask the question, does a certain creature still appear if there's nobody there to see it? And maybe the answer to that is no. So in other words, it depends on the individual to actually see it, almost like a holographic projection, which makes it very complex, because then we're dealing with the mind and that sort of stuff. Right, right. It goes back to really you have to, like... It gets very heavy going. Yeah, as much as you have to look at the story the person's telling you. You have to kind of look at them and figure out... Exactly. You know, well, again, you start going back to poltergeist stuff. They often say that some poltergeist stuff or demonic entities always occur generally in young girls that are kind of going through sort of menstruation cycles and stuff like that. In, in the 1970s, we had a report of a creature in, in the West Country called Owlman, and they said it was a giant owl that stood in a tree the size of a man with red eyes, but it was only ever seen by young teenage girls. The only young boy that see it was actually in the presence of teenage girls. So poltergeist activity, again, is often connected to sort of the menstruation cycle. So maybe these things are states of mind. Um, And then, of course, once you report it to the newspaper, they give it a name like Mothman or Owlman. (laughs) And then other people start saying they've seen it. But are Mothman and Owlman any different to vampires and things like that? So, at the risk of, like, pigeonholing you, what do you think is, what cryptids do you think are really out there? Like the Orang Pendak, the Bigfoot? Uh, I think, yeah, and obviously, again, animals awaiting discovery or rediscovered. Certainly the thylacine, or what is known as the Tasmanian tiger, I think is the most likely cryptid, an animal that was extinct and is probably without a doubt still out there. Loch Ness Monster, 
sadly just a sturgeon. There's no way that there's a plesiosaur in Loch Ness. That is, again, you've got to look at consistency, and, and that is scientifically impossible because you can't have a 60-foot-long plesiosaur going through Loch Ness because it would need to surface all the time. People are just generally seeing a black hump. I think the Yeti, I think the Yeti is a big possibility. Um, but again, you're looking at sort of most of these large mammals have probably been discovered, but we're still finding things, you know, the size of the Akarpi. Um, certainly the, the place that I think hides the most cryptids is the ocean. And I think there could be anything down there. Certainly giant squid would be a cryptid, and you're dealing with giant squid probably 60, 70 foot long, so I believe they still exist, and maybe some sea monsters. Interesting, interesting. We'll talk a little bit about that. What do you mean by sea monsters? Just sort of like, now you say like it's not possible for a plesiosaur to be in the mm. in Loch Ness, but mm. are you leaving the door open for it to be in the ocean or something? Uh, not, no, I don't think <laughs> that there are, no, because basically... Um, Loch Ness a few thousand years ago was like a block of ice. There are ways in and out to the sea. Although it's 26 miles long and 800 feet deep and jet black, I've actually been there. But I don't think, I think again it's something that people don't really see something with a long neck anymore. Um, but a sturgeon can obviously go from both waters and can travel upstream and end up, and we have had sturgeon near River Ness before. I think it's become an icon, a Loch Ness monster, but the ocean is completely different because you're going, you know, it's a bit like some of the more remote jungles of the world. If there's going to be a living dinosaur, then it's going to be somewhere like Guyana, possibly somewhere like the Amazon or the Congo Basin. But I don't think there's still undiscovered, spe uh, you know, populations of dinosaurs around. But I think that the ocean could certainly still hide undiscovered creatures that, you know, have never sort of, you know, a lot of giant squid. There could be something 70 foot long in the ocean, you'd never find it. People say there should be more carcasses, but we know the giant squid exists because of the sucker marks on the sperm whales, but we just haven't got the technology to go down that deep. Exactly, yeah. And considering, you know, the vastness of the ocean, like you said, I mean, hmm. there could be something even stranger out there, you never know. Yeah, but even, you know, the, the, the ocean for me is the place of all the surprises. Um, there is still forest out there where we could still, you know, there is places like Sumatra. You could certainly have a creature that's, you know, we're, we're still finding new monkeys and peccaries and things like that, and these are still quite big animals. So if there's something out there that's intelligent and there's not many left, then we could certainly sort of say there's something in the jungles. But I think what freaks a lot of people out about Bigfoot is they're kind of thinking, well, you know, it's the United States. It's quite a built-up area, but the Pacific Northwest is still huge. My big problem is I've actually been watching a few of these um, Finding Bigfoot that's been on TV. Recently. That is a problem. <laughs> I seem to go out and think everything is a Sasquatch, and I'm, I sit there actually roaring with laughter because, again, <laughs> you've got to eliminate everything first. In the UK, people say these big cats don't exist, but we've got scat, we've got paw prints, but you've got to eliminate everything else first. You've got to say, right, that's not a dog print, that's not a fox cat. And when you start going out and saying, did you hear that? That must be Bigfoot or that must be a big cat. It does make you look like a load of lunatics. That's the problem. And that's why we'll always have these animals in folklore. But people like that, sadly, I don't think you're going to find Bigfoot. And you can see why Bigfoot's not been seen when you've got that kind of research, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that that show makes you wonder if it's supposed to be a parody or not. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I don't know if Finding Bigfoot has done well sort of in the states. It's good entertainment, but it's it is a shame that 
everything they seem to look at, apart from the lady who seems quite level-headed, I think her name's Renee, she seems quite sort of, why would that be a Bigfoot? And that's that's how it should be. You can't sort of say, well, we heard a noise, that must be Bigfoot all the time. And I think that's, tends to make a bit of a mockery of it. But sadly, like I said, it's all entertainment. So Exactly, exactly. Now, we, we talked a little bit about the, the zoo-formed Bigfoot in the London Underground, but what kind of... You know, I've heard stories about, like, gators in the New York sewers and yep. stuff like that. And, and the underground of London is, you know, quite old and quite vast. So, I mean, yeah. what, what kind of stuff said to be lurking in there? Well, we we, uh, we got the occasional report, which I put in the book, regarding giant rats and also an alleged race of sort of um, scavenging type of primitive humans. But a lot of the old stations are quite eerie. A lot of them have shut, been shut down for quite a few years. Um but the creature regarding the so-called Bigfoot was more a case of there was an alleged report from uh, Devon in the West Country going back to, I believe, to the 60s or before that, of an alleged wild man of a sort that was caught on the local moors. And he was sent hot off to a secret underground location beneath London Underground. So some people believe that maybe this is kind of the spirit of this kind of disheveled wild man. So that's really where the story come from. Um... But, of course, newspaper would like to say it's the Bigfoot on the London Underground. <laughs> yeah. It does make it a little, sound a little bit silly, you know. But, yeah, London Underground is very old. There's lots of ghost stories about London Underground, so maybe that's just one of them. Yeah, very weird. Well, I mean, I've seen films here in the in the States about people living in the in the subways of New York and stuff, so I imagine that it actually must be happening in London, too, where... Yeah, there was a British film in, I think it was about 1970-something, and it starred Donald Pleasance. It was called Deathline. I think it's also known as Raw Meat, and that was about these sort of hidden races of people below London Underground that were kind of feeding on drunks and tramps and people like that. But I just think they're urban legends, a lot of these sort of things. But, you know, they, they still make for good and sinister stories. Yeah, I certainly don't think they're organized, but I do think that there's probably homeless people that are living in there. Just by, yeah, the trouble is, it, it would be very difficult getting down to some of these places. It's not the most um, easy living conditions, because apart from rats, there's probably nothing to to live on whatsoever. And to be walking these tracks at night would be difficult as well, because they are they are patrolled anyway. So, apart from ghost stories, I think that there's not really sort of any hope for anybody living down there. Certainly not Bigfoot anyway. Yeah, well, we're not talking about really hopeful people, but... <laughs> Uh, yeah. no, sort of jumping to back towards the uh, the mysterious sort of animals of London and stuff. What about mm. in in the waterways? You know, the sea creatures and stuff like that in the rivers. Yeah, well, stuff. we well we've got the River Thames, and many many years ago, the River Thames was so badly polluted that most sort of species couldn't live there. Nowadays, it's said to be so warm and clean. Um, people even say you could actually drink it, which I would not do. <laughs> But it's certainly very clean to the extent we've got seahorses, uh, blood-sucking lamprey, bizarre catfish. Some of these are now protected species as well. But we've also got other weird reports, and I, I just love the old stories for me. You know, I've got reports going right back of a report of an alligator that was found in the Thames. Also, even a shark, which is absolutely bizarre. I think it dates back from sort of like the 1800s. So the River Thames is an ideal place to an extent, um... We, like I say, because it's becoming so clean, we're now finding sort of lots of species that are coming back. And of course, we get the normal stuff like whales have been seen up there. We've got alien creatures like mussels that have invaded the Thames and stuff like that. And of course, some of these can actually damage 
the ecosystem as well, which which people don't realise. We've got Wells catfish, which can sort of grow to sort of eight foot long. So it's all right having the sort of, you know local monster mystery story in the local River Thames, but the trouble is people will then start you know trying to catch them, or they're dumping illegal species, and then things like you know sort of the ducks and swans are being eaten. Then so that's causing a bit of a problem. But the River Thames has got so many strange stories. And there was a whale caught in sort of Deptford going back to sort of like the 1700s as well and the 1600s. So we've got a big history of these sort of unusual animals in the river. Weird. Weird. But I guess that stands to reason. You kind of made a good point, too, that, you know, London's like an ancient city, really, and, and mm. the U.K. has such a rich history. And, you know, you contrast that to America, which is a very young country. And yeah. really, the America today... You know, America, with the Native Americans, was populated for probably almost as long as what was going on in Europe, but yeah. there's a sharp divide there. There's not like a shared cultural history yeah. going back thousands of years. It's really, America really only has a cultural history of like maybe 300, 400 years at this point compared to someplace really like, what's that? It's really bizarre that, you know, you've got a country of yours so huge, you know, I think Texas is probably, you know, the size of England, and yet England's got this eerie, sinister kind of feel to it that seems to go back so deep-rooted. And um, although most of our mysteries are on a smaller scale, yeah, we've just got so many very, very creepy ghost stories that, you know, go back absolutely centuries. And Mm -hmm. I just think some of these really old stories are absolutely amazing. And when you can unearth new stories, it's quite quite sinister. But I suppose it makes it more freaky to the extent that, you know, Britain's allegedly not meant to be that big. Well, I think it's about the seventh largest island in the world. But we've got moorlands, we've still got forest, we've got sort of mountains in Scotland. So we've got some pretty vast areas, and I think that people find it hard to sort of accept that we've got strange creatures in such a small place, but it seems to be the case. Yeah, I think, too, uh, to, to sort of tie it into the zoo form is, too, it's like you have that longer sort of... Uh, history of like this collective unconscious too where it you know goes back so far that maybe there's sort of this openness uh of the population if you will kind of to tie it back to what i was saying about america where it's like we just don't have that sort of rich history yeah and and, and like i say a lot of the stories again we're going back to these old ancient trackways and there's always stories you know we've got churches that kind of go back to the 1200s we've got pubs uh, my local pub it goes back to 11-something, and there's stories in there about ghostly monks and things like that. So you're walking around these places and thinking, goodness knows what has happened there in the past. You know, we've got sort of these old ancient castles. I live right next to a castle, and there's an old ghost story going back to the 1400s. And they're just amazing stories. And I would love to have been around back then to see how these stories came about. But I find it even more interesting that they've lasted five to six, seven hundred years as well. Exactly, yeah, yeah. It says something that maybe there's there's some kind of energy there, I think, but I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I think they often say if walls could talk, I think some of these old castles would tell some very weird stories. It's like energies have seeped into the the fabric of the place, and maybe, again, they're repeated to certain individuals depending on their mindset. Now, I noticed uh, the, the, you got this new book coming up, Shadows in the Sky, The Haunted Airways of Britain, and one of them, uh, one of, in the little blurb I read about it, it says that, in there is a story about uh, sort of like dragons seen in the sky and a griffin seen over London. So I guess talk a little bit about sort of like the weird, you know, mystery creatures of the air, if you will. Yeah, well, I think, we, again, we've 
well, the, the world, in fact, has got a history of, we talked about Mothman earlier, and I think that it's interesting that the Griffin is a bit like one of those archetype images that has faded out over the years. It was made popular by sort of these kind of Sinbad and Jason and the Argonauts or movies. But it's interesting that, you know, one person's Griffin could be another person's Mothman. The story with the, the London Brentford Griffin is a bit odd. It kind of goes back to the 1980s, and it was alleged that somebody see this flying creature over this certain town, which is called Brentford in North London. But the weird thing about it is it was seen about four or five times, allegedly. Some people believe it was a hoax. But what I find more interesting is the fact that it was seen on a building, which is called the Green Dragon. Um, there's a local pub in the area called the Griffin, the local football team are called the Griffins, and they play at Griffin Park. So it was almost like the coat of arms had literally come to life. So I think that maybe they hadn't seen a Griffin, but it was the best thing to call it, because it was sort of it tied in, like I say, to the, the cultural history and the coat of arms. But again, there's been reports of so-called sky serpents in the UK, so... A griffin to somebody would be a griffin to somebody else. It could be a dragon. Right. But I think it's all down to interpretation. Right, right. Somebody who didn't know what a griffin was would say it was a dragon or something like that. Yeah, or somebody else would say, well, it was a big bird. I think that's the case with Mothman. I think that people originally were seeing either something like a large, huge bird. Other people were saying it was like a giant owl. Another person said it was almost like a man with wings. But nobody ever said it was it like a moth. Um... But it's interesting how that came about just with like a newspaper report and then how it kind of embeds itself and now Mothman's almost a household name. So, very weird. Yeah, yeah, Mothman had a surprising level of popularity, it seems. Yeah, and I think as well it kind of crosses over into the UFO stuff, uh, the Men in Black. What I find hilarious about aliens and UFOs is that we always seem to blame them. Um, when we had reports of Men in Black, it was kind of like, okay, blame the aliens. Crop circles... Blame the aliens. Cattle mutilations. Blame the aliens. Abduction. Blame the aliens. It's like we blame extraterrestrials for absolutely everything. Um, I don't know your opinion on, on UFOs, but I think maybe UFOs, UFOs are tulpas. And I think that we put them there. But that's just my opinion. I'm still, uh, well, I'm a believer in, in UFOs to an extent, uh, mm. but I find the whole thing quite uh, a kaleidoscope of potential answers, but I do find what you're saying interesting that, that, you know, aliens have become the scapegoat of the paranormal community, which is something that I hadn't really considered yeah. until you said that. The reason I think the reason I think they're almost like a a tolper is that I think that they seem what I find odd is they've always been with us, allegedly. We now look back to the Bible and some of the writings and say, Oh chariots in the sky and there must be UFOs. But what I find it interesting is that you know, I don't know if there was UFOs around with, when the dinosaurs were around. We're probably never, ever going to know that. But I find it interesting that over the years they've changed shape. It was only sort of from the sort of the 1940s when Kenneth Arnold see the so-called saucers over Washington. But it's odd how we had phantom airships, and I believe there was some phantom airship scares in the United States yeah. in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. But why? But it was interesting that we said these were UFOs at the time. And also, you go back through a lot of the old... I'm a big collector of very old sort of um, esoteric books, and you go back through some of the old 1930s books, and why is it we didn't have reports of these so-called grey aliens then? Why have they become almost a modern phenomenon? It's as if they change with us, or we mould them to fit into our society, which suggests to me 
they aren't real in a flesh and blood sense. But I think that UFOs have been put there. I think we've put them there. And the best book I've read on this recently was Nick Redfern's The Real Men in Black. And he mentions how these men in black don't seem to exist anymore. They fitted in with a 1950s gangster sort of look. They were these creepy wooden style of figures. And he sort of surmised that maybe they weren't really sinister after all, but they had to appear in black so that we knew that there was a fear. We needed a fear. It's a bit like angels. Now, we think angels must be good guys because they appear in white. They sort of have lovely white wings, but who's to say that they're the bad guys? So I think it's stuff that we've been fed over the years that, again, you believe it enough, it starts to happen. Maybe UFOs are one of these things. Well, it's interesting, too, because uh, I was thinking about this when I was asking you about why it seems like a lot of these zoo form things aren't positive, and that's that, you know, maybe... Maybe this, like, whole, that whole wave of, like, contactees and stuff, maybe that was, you know, for lack of a better term, like a zoo form or some kind of tulpification or, you know, a manifestation of the mind. Because it did seem to sweep across the nation and, you know, it was very nebulous. Yeah, I think, again, it's, it's very difficult. Basically, see, what I find interesting is you mentioned about how they don't seem to be positive, but I think that's because of how they appear. But that's the only thing that seems to be negative. Now, with Mothman... But he was seen around this bridge um, at Point Pleasant. And then, of course, the bridge collapsed and killed 47 people. So we start thinking, well, Mothman was quite sinister. But maybe it had to appear that way to alert us that something bad was going to happen. But it doesn't mean that itself was malevolent. So it could have been something good, but it could only get our attention by appearing like that. You know, if it appeared yeah. as a flying cow then we may have just laughed. <laughs> so it needed to appear as something slightly more sinister to give us a bit like the men in black. So I think that maybe a lot of these aren't bad guys. Um, I think UFOs, I don't know, I just think you've got to look at it from a different angle. I think that, I think the abductions are identical to old hag attacks. Now the old hag is said to be something where you're laying in bed at night, you wake up, you can't move, there's a presence in the room. Sometimes people describe like a witch type of old crone straddling across your chest. Sometimes they say these things take from you your blood, uh, your semen, in the case of what we call wet dreams. Also as well, your breath. What I find interesting is that are these things any different from the original incubus and succubus, the male and female demons? Is our aliens any different? They say that apparently they take the fetus from people. They take us into these great craft. Is there any difference between alien abduction and the old hag? And I'd, I don't know if anybody's actually looked at that, um, but I, I don't know. I think that I almost refuse to believe, despite believing in some strange stuff and having some weird experiences, I don't believe that little green men or whoever are coming into people's bedrooms from flying craft and zipping across the skies from other planets. I think there's something going on here with us that we don't understand. Absolutely, yeah. Well, the... You know, the biggest component... Which makes it even scarier. Elaborate on that then a little bit, because I'm intrigued by why you say it makes it even scarier. Well, if it's to do with us, again, going back to the mind and the human psyche, if you're driving along a country road at night, or you're laying in your bed at night and a weird light appears, and then suddenly you've lost two hours, straight away again we think, well, obviously somebody's come down, they've got to be taking us because we've got this image in our mind if we go through regression of this bug-eyed extraterrestrial type of creature. But what if this is connected to the human psyche? Now, we know very little about the mind. 
if nothing, you know, nothing, you know, we've only scratched the surface to this sort of thing. So again, we need a scapegoat to an extent, but we didn't have alien abduction going back 50, 60 years ago, not in that sense. And again, we didn't have these Whitley Stryber type of communion, black-eyed creatures. Some of the old 1950s UFO books describe a whole whole sort of menagerie of creatures, like these furry sort of dwarves and things like that. Yeah. Maybe they move with the times, just like the Jersey Devil, just like Phantom Airships, like Men in Black. Now, we blamed crop circles on aliens. Why on earth would aliens make crop circles? It doesn't make sense. Nobody's ever seen an alien make a crop circle. We just think it's aliens because they appear complex and we don't understand them. We think Bigfoot is connected to aliens because we don't understand it and because maybe somebody see a light in the sky, then Bigfoot appeared, they think there must be a connection. So we're always striving to try and explain things, but I think a lot of this is to do with us. And I find that quite eerie and quite creepy because you start thinking, well, if I'm being abducted from my bed of a night by these alien type of figures, maybe it's my mind that's going somewhere. And that's what I find quite quite creepy. We have a case in the UK going back around 15, 20 years of a family that were continually plagued by these figures coming into sort of the bedroom of a night. The dad in the family was never experienced in this sort of thing. But the interesting thing was that it was next to Ministry of Defence land. Now, I'm not blaming the military for this, but I think the military and the government are more likely to be the cause rather than alien beings coming from other planets. And that's also quite scary as well. Yeah, that's that's... That's creepy for sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I see what you're kind of saying. It's like why, you know, raises the question of why are we conjuring these things up? And then it makes yeah. you wonder why, you know. Well, that's the trouble again. We're never really going to truly know because it's to do with the mind. And again, you've got to go start. Only real scientists can do that. And I, I don't, as far as I'm aware, not many scientists are looking into that. I know there's some people, um, there's a great American book um, by Dr. Hufford, I believe, called The Terror That Comes in the Night. And it looks at hag attacks. And he describes how in certain parts of the United States, people see a certain type of figure. And they always describe an old hag. What I find bizarre is, if you look at these different cases, but in different parts of the world, it differs. In Zanzibar, um, they've got a creature called the Papa Boa. And they describe it as a little black type of baby with one eye and bat wings. And it comes in the bedroom of a night. Now, I know people very close to me that have had weird experiences. So why should the alien abduction syndrome be any different from the hang hag attack? I know people that have been attacked in their beds of a night. There's been blood in the bed. But they've never left their beds. And I doubt that they've actually seen that this actual hag has been in the room. So what is actually happening? Maybe it's happening on an astral level. And maybe that's where legends of vampires come from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good uh, segue, actually, because you have a chapter in the book called Neil Arnold versus the Highgate Vampire. And I've gotten a bunch of emails from people in the past asking about the Highgate Vampire. So uh, mm-hmm. talk about this story and, and how you uh, ended up <laughs> in, in some kind of uh, feud or duel with him. <laughs> um, well, basically, in the late 60s, um, London, like I say, was quite a swinging place. Um, I'm very into 1960s culture. Um, I love all stuff like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and stuff like that. But swinging 60s London, again, was a time of sort of freedom. There was lots of so-called devil worship and alleged stuff. And there was this very creepy cemetery in London called Highgate. And it looks like something from a Hammer Horror film set. And people started to report that they were actually walking past the old sort of wrought iron gate and they were seeing this black figure that was kind of draining them of energy. 
Some people describe it as having red eyes. Other people believe that it was summoned or it was a negative energy that was spawned by devil worshippers. And then basically people started coming out saying, well, it's a vampire. Well, to some extent, it is, because a vampire, all a vampire is, is something that drains energy. It's not, you know, what people think, you know, Christopher Lee or people like Twilight and that sort of stuff, but it shows how it moves on over the years. Right. But then other people started saying, no, it's an actual vampire. Somebody claimed they went to the cemetery and actually sort of um, exercised it. There was lots of arrests at the time, grave desecration. Somebody believed, claimed that there... Um, there was people being having sort of puncture marks in their throat overnight. Other people said they see zombies rising out of the tombs in the cemetery. And I just wanted to investigate this because there was only kind of two guys that really investigated it at the time. And they eventually fell out and they've been feuding for many, many years, sadly. They've both written books on it. Um, one guy believes it was an actual vampire and the other guy believes it was a malevolent type of entity, like a dormant sort of draining spirit. Yeah. I believe, again, like Mothman, and it's interesting that it was around the same time as Mothman, if this had happened in West Virginia, it would have been classed as Mothman. It was black, it had red eyes, and it floated above a gate. But in London, it was classed as a vampire, because that's what the newspapers called it. And that's where the legend of the Highgate vampire came about. And it's absolutely an amazing story. But I think it's a similar, similar thing all over the world. These We call them vampires, we call them Mothmen. We've got to give it a name, and the more people start to... You put it out there, it starts to happen, and then it gradually just fades away because, of course, there's not not that level of interest anymore. Right, right. <laughs> and how did it, well? What's the what's the significance of Neil Arnold versus? Well, because basically I just started already investigating, and I went there, um, interviewed lots of people, and it became an almost personal sort of quest. Um, so I pretty much called it versus the Highgate Vampire as if I was kind of like a, a modern-day Van Helsing type of thing. Um, <laughs> and I, in the actual book, there's all these amazing... I've got my own illustrator, and he's done sort of all these amazing pictures of me getting chased by Bigfoot, um, taking on this vampire, um, and also being attacked by dragons. But I've got, I'm very into the 1960s, as I said, so a lot of the pictures have kind of got this... 60s kind of look about it as well but yeah it was great writing about it but it was interesting again looking at other people's theories on on vampires and stuff like that all over the world and these sort of panics have taken place there's one in the united states called the mineral point vampire i believe it took place in the 80s in wisconsin and people started seeing this shadowy type of figure so i think these are common all over the world but it, it needs to be out there enough for it to take on any type of form. Otherwise, like most sort of zoo forms, it just fades away after 10 minutes. Right, right, exactly. But the Highgate Vampire went on for about four or five years. Interesting, interesting. Well, I'm sure we're going to investigate that further down the line here on the show. Look, whether or not Anton is indeed a midget or a dwarf... No, he's a midget. What's the difference? Well, a dwarf is someone who has disproportionately short arms and legs. Oh, I know the ones. Yeah. 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 It's caused by a hormone deficiency. Yeah. Bloody hormones. Yeah. Mm. A midget is still a dwarf, but their arms and legs are in proportion. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. So, what's an elf? Do you want to answer that? An elf is a supernatural being. Sometimes they're invisible, they're like fairies. They don't actually exist, do they? In real life. Now, I, I was looking at some of these notes I have on, on the book and stuff, and one of the things you talk about in there is the uh, the phantom roar. This basically was to do with a couple that moved into a property in London uh, only a couple of years ago. 
um, and they would start hearing a roaring in the corridor if there was a lion oh, okay. in there, and they would be feeding their domestic cats, and they would get a roar. Maybe they believed that the house had been built on some type of place where there might have been an ancient menagerie or something. But I'm quite familiar as well with these roars in the sky. The, the, the book I've done, The Shadows in the in the Sky, um, it actually does mention phantom hums, roars, bangs, explosions and that sort of thing as well because we've got a lot of stuff in the UK regarding these irritable hums which drive people absolutely mad but only certain people can hear them. Um, and it's actually resulted in some people even dying um, and lots of weird stuff going on but whether it's come some type of supersonic craft that we don't know about, I think that could be the case in, you know, in the sense of some of these bizarre roars. Yeah, it seems that way. You're like underground drilling or something. I've heard people theorize. Yeah. So, all right, yeah, I wasn't but it, sure. But it is, odd, it is odd that sort of stuff's going on, though, because you start thinking, well, this is affecting people. Nobody, the so-called government or the authorities, don't seem to care about it. So why aren't they investigating it? I've got a case in the shadows in the sky book about a family or an old couple that moved to a retirement home in the in the wilds of in Kent in a rural place and started hearing these bizarre humming noises that was constant nobody else could hear it they would send out sort of inspectors and nothing would happen they would make inquiries and nothing would be sort of followed up and eventually it drove them mad to the extent that the lady died because she was so ill because of the stress the guy said his teeth and his hair fell out and they eventually moved away, and they'd actually, this was bizarrely near Ministry of Defence land. So once again, it makes you wonder what's going on, and it's quite creepy once again. I'm not really a big conspiracy theorist, but you do start thinking, well, is this our own government or military doing this? And they obviously don't care about those that they're affecting. Right, right. Well, it's interesting, too, because we get into, we're talking about these things being potential creations of the mind, and hmm. as science advances, maybe... You know, we, I've kind of talked about this with other guests, too, but almost in, in the interdimensional sense, but it, it can apply here sort of with the Tulpa idea, too, that it could be only a matter of time before one day we, we pick up the newspaper and hear a story that, you know, that they figured out what part of the mind conjures this kind of stuff. Yeah, maybe one day. Um, but I think because we know so little about the mind, um, it's good to have science, but obviously sometimes science is a hindrance, especially when looking for so-called strange creatures to an extent but I think I don't know I, sometimes you, you get so confused by all this you don't know who to trust and then you start becoming paranoid you can end up like one of these UFO researchers in the 1950s who starts getting harassed by people that aren't there <laughs> they make great stories but you wonder again if you're kind of feeding this sort of stuff because you're thinking you know do we trust our government do we trust scientists you know is there weird stuff going on with the military are all UFOs part of the government and you do think to say, well, if it's not, then what's really going on? Are there things, you know, coming you know, from different sort of places? Are they coming within? And the more you think about it, you think you just eventually drive yourself insane. But it's mystery, so you need to investigate it at some point. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Well, have you, you know, like I was saying when we started the interview here, like not to get too meta on the, on the conversation, but it's like... Uh, I, I hasten to call you a cryptozoologist. Have you sort of run into friction with the cryptozoology community for your take on some of this stuff? Um, not really. Um, again, what you've got to find is there aren't actually that many cryptozoologists. A cryptozoologist, to me, is a zoologist that pretty much, as a side, will also study strange creatures. 
Um, certainly people like, um, you know, Lauren Coleman in the United States, I'd consider him a cryptozoologist. Right. Cole Shuka in the UK, he's, he's had a lot of stuff published. He did the foreword to my monster book, and he's very much of a zoological mindset. But he also does investigate folkloric stuff, because a lot of this stuff does come from folklore, whether it's true or not. But I think as well, you do get, I found it a few times, in certainly in the United States, regarding Bigfoot. I know Nick Redfern did a little blog at some point saying about, you know, Bigfoot is probably not real, it's got to be paranormal. And he did get a lot of, you know, har- you know harassment with that. And he wasn't bothered about it, but it, it is a bit sad that you get this type of harassment or people moaning at you, because it's just an opinion. And, and, and until Bigfoot is actually found... It could absolutely, like you say, it could be anything. Uh, and I think that Mothman and Jersey Devil has proven that we can have things that exist for a while that clearly are a sum of many parts. But I think with some things, we have got to be more grounded and say, okay, we have got these prints of Bigfoot and people like um, Dr. Jeff Meldrum seems to be investigating this sort of thing. I've seen numerous um, documentaries regarding the Patterson film and they have said 100% that it's real. And they've proven that with saying it can't anatomically be a hoax. So if it's not a man in a suit, then it's got to be real because they didn't have those type of effects back then. So it does become a bit all heavy going sometimes, and I think you're always going to get detractors and people having a go at you. I get a lot of that in the UK with the Bigfoot and the Big Cat sort of stuff, and then they think I'm mad because I like to write about folklore and monsters, but I'm not. You have to keep stuff separate sometimes, so I think that you're always going to get friction in the community. Right, right, exactly, yeah. Now, a lot of these stories are, as we said, kind of like folkloric stuff. And but, but on occasion, I do kind of hear these tales of what could best be described as like zoo forms tormenting, usually like countries in Africa or Asia or something like that in modern times. But do you see yep. these sort of things happening in in the modern times? Do you think that they would happen more often, given how you know we have like we're living in this Twitter Facebook world where people can become overwhelmed you know a, a, a craze can happen overnight but you don't really see that really as far as I can tell in America and in the UK I guess maybe that whole thing with the, all the birds that were dying last year kind of may have become something like that but, but what do you think of that whole thing yeah but again well I think maybe Twitter and Facebook is a double-edged sword I think with them they're also restrictive as well because people are becoming so obsessed with their with Facebook and Twitter that they're refusing to have an open mind as well. So I know people that only read, you know, we have newspapers in the UK that are atrocious and people read them and they will come up to me and say, oh, have you read this in the paper? It must be true, it's in the paper. Now, we know the power of newspapers that, you know, they completely lie most of the time and exaggerate. But Twitter and Facebook is easy to spread a rumour. Um, but I think that, there are certain crazies which catch on. Um, the more recent one we had was in India a few years ago, which they called the Monkey Man. And it was this kind of five to six foot tall, hairy type of critter that at night was allegedly coming into people's apartments in sort of in parts of Delhi, uh, baking hot, so sweltering hot there to sort of keep their doors open. This thing was coming in and scratching their skull, biting their skull. But they never found it. Some people started saying it resembled like a man that mixed with like a monkey. Other people said it had like a computerized dashboard on its chest. And then gradually it just faded out. And I believe it was a panic. A lot of it was to do with also as well the rhesus monkeys. Um, the rhesus monkey, monkey is like a worshipped animal in Delhi. So people couldn't go out and kill this monkey. 
but I think that you get these weird panics. And it did remind me a lot of a classic London story going back to the 1800s, which a lot of people in the United States would have heard of, called Spring Hill Jack. Mm -hmm. And it was a similar type of thing. So I think again, you know, Mothman, are all these things the same? I think I think they are. I think they are all mostly the result of panic and hysteria because you can tell somebody a story to try and cause panic and it may only last a day, but why is it other stories can last anywhere between five days or 10, 20 years? So panics can always last. That's, what, that's the power of urban legends, I guess. Um, urban legends are passed down over the years, but we try to mould them into whatever the climate is at the time, basically. Right, right. And you can kind of go back to the the, the witch trials here in America. Exactly. Like kind of yep. Exactly. Like, even with Men in Black, you know, we can't really have Men in Black anymore because they wouldn't fit into our psyche. Crop circles in the UK are fading out. You know, you've got the cattle mutilations in the United States. They, I'm not saying that the cattle mutilations aren't real. They clearly are. But straight away we think it's aliens, and other people start saying it's these black helicopters. Other people say, well, it must be a predator. Is it a monster? So they, there's waves and panics, and you do wonder sometimes, why don't we ever get any updates? How long, you know, I'm pretty sure the cattle mutilations are still going on, but they have their time, and then they fade away, and then we move on to the next mystery. And I find that absolutely amazing, far more amazing than the fact that we could have actual monsters out there. Well, right, and if you took, like, all the... You know, if you took all the creatures in the A to Z of zoo form phenomena, like, <laughs> we'd live in a really crazy world. Like, there would be, you know, you, you, you couldn't turn around without running into some kind of weird animal. Yeah, and, you know, you, you do, because you think to yourself, you know, there's lots of amazing animals on this earth, but, you know, there's, there's creatures I've got in the book, and people have looked at the book and said, that's ridiculous. And I said, yeah. I've said, I'm not saying these animals exist, these things exist, but, Somewhere, somewhere, somebody has seen one of these things or believes this exists, and it's become a legend. Some are very vague. Some, like I say, like Mothman, seem to have a little bit more strength. But it goes right back to sort of the beginning of mankind. And I'm thinking, have these things grown with us as we've grown? And that's why I still think UFOs are part of the same thing. I just think they are. I just We need them to exist because we say, yes, we've seen they look metal. But then again... Some creatures to some people look real. Some ghosts to some people look real, but they're not real. You know, I've known people that have seen ghosts that say, well, it was solid. But even that person said, well, then it walked through the wall. So ghosts aren't just, you know, frilly white sheets that are semi-transparent. But people are seeing a solid thing, or seemingly solid thing, but it's clearly not a flesh and blood thing. But it doesn't make it kind of not real. So it does become very confusing and a bit surreal and psychedelic when you're putting all these creatures together, like this bizarre menagerie of sort of impossibilities. But, you know, they seem to be out there and all over the place, these monsters. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Every country's got its own its own personal menagerie of, of weird monsters. Mm. It's very easy. But they don't, seem any, they don't seem any different. Like, you know, right. we used to, when you're a kid growing up, you have stories of gargoyles and, like I said, harpies and satires and centaurs. People still see these things, but we give them, like I say, different names nowadays. So we wouldn't say, oh, I've seen a gargoyle now. We would say we've seen whatever resembles a gargoyle. We would say it's a mothman or something like that. So, you know, the Jersey Devil, to me, always sounded like it was something akin to a dragon. And now you look at reports of the Jersey Devil, the last hundred years, it sounds to me very similar to the Chupacabra. It's this little thing with these small wings 
so I think that there's so many connections, but they vary regarding or on depending on this culture they belong to. If that makes sense. Right, right, right. Well, like that that kind of ties into another idea too. This, you know, depending on the culture, people ascribe these things to like sort of demonic entities. Now, do you do you give any credence to the idea that there's like sort of these sinister entities beyond what may be being created by the mind? Um, well, there's got to be good and evil, as they say. I, I personally, myself, I don't believe in God. Um, I think that God is, to me anyway, in my opinion, before I upset anybody, is a a thing that again has been put there. It's a faith. Um, I don't believe in sort of the Bible and things like that, but I think if you can have all these zoo form things, then they can clearly just simply be a god as well, because I, I see them all as the, the same sort of thing. But I, I don't know about a negative energy can certainly spawn something that looks quite hideous. They often say that when you, I think I mentioned at the beginning of my monster book, there's a quote um, which says about the basic demon as depicted obviously cannot be the being that attracts a traveller. So in other words, it can't... It's almost about luring people. It's shape-shifting. So it's got to appear as a lure because it just, it's become so kind of heavy going and complicated. But it kind of says here in the Field Guide to Demons that some say the non-corporeal spirits hide within natural shapes. Others claim they never actually actualize by shape-shifting but simply project illusory images like film stars designed to ensnare and seduce, which kind of goes back to absolutely everything. It's something to lure us in. So it appears sinister, probably because it needs to appear sinister, or it's down to the individual that sees it. It's a bit of a screws of your mind, I think, after this. (laughs) I've researched some stuff in the past, and it has almost driven me absolutely mad, and and I've actually seen some weird things because of the research I've done. Well, tell me a little bit about that. You can't just tease me. You can't tease me, Neil, with that kind of stuff. What, what, what almost drove you mad? Well, it, it, when you start looking into stuff, I think there's certain types of researchers. I think some researchers are able to do research and somehow separate themselves from it. When I a few years ago, I was basically doing a normal day job, but I've always been a writer since I was little, and I gave up my day job to pursue this full time. As I said, doing yeah. the big cat stuff, but doing the monster stuff, the zoo form stuff. You start, you start seeing things which aren't there. I believe that ghost hunters expect to see things. They go out, they see things as a project, a product of their mind. They don't understand that. I've had ghost hunters moan at me because I've said that what they've seen is a, pro- a projection of their energy and their belief. Right. But when you start going into really deep stuff, you start. Some people call it psychic backlash. Um, Jonathan Downs once told me to be very, very careful when I was investigating stuff that was becoming quite dark and seemingly sinister. Um, it can almost sort of, you know, sort of come back and sort of bite you on the on the butt, as they say. But it was a bit kind of odd. I basically had weird things kind of happening at night. I don't take drugs. I'm not a big drinker. Um, but when you're writing a lot, you become isolated. Now, like I say, lots of researchers can write stuff and leave it. But I go out in the woods a lot. I spend a lot of time out on my own. I've spoken to a lot of strange people I attract a lot of strange people as well it's okay if they're women but it's the guys that tend to be a bit weird um, but yeah you do you end up in places that I'm not saying they're negative but it just it's what it feeds um, and I've had stuff happen in the night which I can't explain um, and I would class it as almost what we call a psychic vampirism 
um, brought on by stress, lack of sleep, but I can't explain it. I've had doctors and scientists. So many people basically across the world can be laying there at night and they see something in their room and a, and a doctor could tell them, well, you was eating too much cheese or it's a nightmare. But some things can't be explained. I don't see why stress would make me lay there at night and make something come into my room and just say attack me. A bit like in the old um, Hollywood movie, The Entity, in the 70s. Yeah. I think, again, it depends on the individual. I don't get no stuff happen to me now, but I've had stuff in the past, and it was around the time when I was writing the monster book, and it was just very, very creepy stuff that I wouldn't really want to go back to, and on one occasion it actually involved my wife as well. So Weird. there is stuff that does happen, and I think this is stuff that goes right back. And, I, you know, people could say, oh, well, he's probably just mad, but this happens to people all over the world, and... I don't know what it is, but I think you've got to be of a certain mindset for it to happen. Right, right, right. And there's, you know, people can accidentally sort of stumble into that kind of thing. You know, there's always that sort of... I guess, yeah, I think I think a lot of these things are unintentional. Um, I think that they're often... Um, you can go out looking for stuff, but you won't find it. Sometimes it usually sort of appears when you least expect it, whether it's a ghost or, or a monster or whatever, but... It goes back to that thing again. Do these things appear when there's no one there to see it? And I think the answer is no. So it needs somebody to trigger it off. Right, right. And I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting thoughts in my mind here of like stories of, uh, you know, this is completely down a different path, but I think kind of related. We're, you know, we're talking about sort of, uh, I coined this term when I talked to Nick uh, about the tulpas, so sort of this tulpification, you know, this, right. this creation via the mind, you know, and then I think about these stories about people playing with Ouija boards. And how, you know, they've, they've been, you know, pre-warned not to do it. And the next thing, and then you hear the stories later that something followed them home. And, you know, but really it could just all be a manifestation of what, you know, they were led to expect when they played with the thing in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it all goes back to the kind of the old Victorian seances and table tipping and that thing sort of thing. There were a lot of hoaxes around, but there was a lot of people as well that were kind of sort of seeing things that, were probably there, and it was probably the stuff that was sort of what we call psychic energy, negative energy, stuff like that. And of course, now we've got this the recent panic of the um, uh, like Hollywood film, The Paranormal Activity. Yeah. Um, I think it's an awful film. It's absolute rubbish. But of course, it gets people into it, it's entertainment, and then people start kind of having it happen to them. But that's basically to me, Paranormal Activity is very similar to Alien Abduction and Hag Attacks. But, of course, it's been made into a, a cultural sort of Hollywood phenomenon, so it becomes more acceptable then. Yeah, it makes you wonder what we can expect next. <laughs> yeah, it does. It comes in trends. And a lot of this was all started off by Blair Witch. Now, I thought the Blair Witch film was quite good simply because it was nice to see a film that didn't rely on gore, really irritating sort of actors and a really sort of terrible soundtrack. It just kind of put people out there in the woods and you made up your own mind. Um, and it was kind of suggestive. With Blair Witch, it was kind of, is it a serial killer? Is it a ghost? Is it satanic? Is it Bigfoot? Is it the Jersey Devil? You didn't know. So Blair Witch was your own personal bogeyman. And I think the bogeyman is something that we've all got, and it always takes different forms, whether it's in the form of, you know, the two fairy, Santa Claus, that sort of thing. Um, it's on the bogeyman appears wherever you want him to. Now, I, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but I, I take it now that, um, now correct me if I'm wrong, do you, do you give much credence to the idea of ghosts, or are you kind of skeptical about that? 
I think a similar thing. I think that people see what they want to see or you know, they can unintentionally see something. You know, I've got people in my family who I trust with my life that claim to have seen what we call ghosts. So I'm not, I can't dismiss it, but I've never seen anything. I think loads of people do, but also, again, it's, it's to do with a mindset. I think some people are more susceptible, or we could call them psychic, um, certainly children and animals seem to be able to pick up certain things. So I'm not going to dismiss people that say they have seen something, but I do think, again, it depends on the individual. Because, like, the, that was kind of the setup, because then the, the other part is just that when you look at, you know, looking at all the different books you've written, you look at the sheer litany of sort of, like, uh, phantom animals and how it seems like every animal has a corresponding phantom version. You almost yeah. wonder if, if, if ghosts are real, then maybe there's ghost animals and and that's what's going on with that whole thing oh definitely yeah i often do ask the question though why don't we ever see ghosts of dinosaurs yeah exactly is it because their energy is too old or because they were before the mindset of man so if it's before the mindset of man i just think that i don't know yeah you do get i've got reports um in the the mystery animals of the british isles london book i've got reports in there of of a phantom lion that was seen um, a phantom chicken, which was quite funny. Uh, the, pol- the poultry geist, which I thought was great. Um, phantom birds, phantom bears we've got in London as well. So, yeah, you can certainly have phantom animals, but then the problem is then, is a phantom animal a zoo form? So that's why I had to try and work out when I was kind of doing the book, why to kind of keep it separate. You know, just a, a bear that had died many years ago but was still being seen. You know, is that the same as a big demonic bear that's kind of 15 foot tall kind of thing? So it's very, very difficult to try and you know, classify and separate things. <laughs> it's such a strange uh, avenue, really. It's really... Uh... It's opening a can of worms. That's a problem. You end up looking into something and you can just go forever and forever. And at some point you have to draw the line and stop. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, but it's it's commendable. Like I said earlier, I mean, this this whole idea of the zoo form is is really adds a, an element that we, the uh, the paranormal needs in a sense. Yeah, definitely because I think I was I was reading magazines as a kid, and there was often you get all the ghost magazines that would come out, and I would always have like I kept thinking, why don't ghost investigators really go out looking for ghostly animals? You might get reports of it, you know a phantom bird or a phantom domestic cat. But I've got a report going back to, there's a place in London called Hampstead, and it's mentioned, there's an old author called Elliot O'Donnell, who was a great author, and he wrote about a chap that went to um, Sumatra on an expedition, and he was cursed by a local woman. Now, the bizarre thing is, when he came back to London, he started seeing a huge phantom ape in his bedroom. (laughs) Now, this I would class as a zoo form, because, of course, there's no reason for it to be a ghostly ape because why would he see a, a ghost of an ape in his bedroom unless somebody centuries or goodness knows how long ago had a phantom ape because we don't have apes in the UK. So that's where it would become a zoo form. But it does go sort of show again how, like you say, you can have phantom gorillas and phantom this and phantom that. So it, maybe, again, still depends on the individual who sees it. But I don't know why this guy would see a phantom sort of ape unless it was to do with the curse that was put upon him. Right, right. And you can't really, you know, you almost have to discount the interdimensional idea unless there's like corresponding and, <laughs> uh, you know, all species have their own, you know, interdimensional yeah. correspondences, which sounds almost unbelievable in and of itself. 
Yeah, because then that means you can have like a phantom ant. But how would you know if it was a phantom ant unless you picked it up and it kind of dissolved? <laughs> how many phantom ants are there, you know? It's, I tried to do an article once on phantom insects, and there are reports, but they're obviously not as popular as phantom birds and phantom cats and things like that. Yeah, well, it's interesting, too, you know. When you think about it, up until, like, uh, you know, I don't know the precise date, but maybe, like, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, like, they didn't even know that, like, germs existed. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. there could be, like, this whole other realm of, of things that we don't know about, you know. Maybe yeah, that's so these maybe, things. Maybe a lot of these things are actually here with us, but, you know, our reality... Without sort of going too deep again, but our, you know, we what we class as reality may sort of not be. People are often given the opinion that UFOs come from where we are, similar to ghosts. They kind of flip through some type of tear in the fabric of time. Yeah, and maybe they do. Maybe that is what happens. But of course, we then say, well, it's all in our mind and things like that. And scientists come out and say that's impossible. But people do see these things. So, and people are always going to see these sort of things. Yeah, yeah. It's just we don't know what the next incarnation of this is going to be. No, and of course in different parts of the world again you're getting different social panics, you know. it's We've had a report um, in London, near London only about three weeks ago, of what people said was Spring Hill Jack. Now Spring Hill Jack was around in 1838, and they're saying he's been seen again. Although what was seen wasn't the same as Spring Hill Jack, but... People are now trying to bring it back to life, but of course, it's died a death. It's died on its feet because Spring Hill Jack, the legend has already been about. If somebody's seen Mothman nowadays, it's not going to have the same effect as when it was seen in the 1960s because it's gone. The moment has gone for that type of that mystery. The fad is no longer there. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. I think it's an under under-examined sort of aspect of the paranormal, you know. I could have sworn I talked to somebody on the show about this, but I may be wrong, but, you know, I would love to see if there, you know, has ever been sort of like a, a, a sort of faux panic, you know, an orchestrated panic of something that was, you know, fake in the first place that turned out to be real. The more I say that yeah. now, I'm sure that I've had someone on the show tell me that, but yeah, I don't I recall. Think probably, well, I think there has been. I think that... Um, there's in the shadows in the sky book I've done. W- apparently, there was we had sightings going back to uh, one of the world wars um, regarding what we called an angel. It was called the Angel of Mons. It was said to have appeared on the clouds just before um, war ceased, and everybody kind of in Britain was like, "Oh, it was amazing to see this thing." Now, my great grandmother, she actually did see this angel appear in the clouds. Now, bizarrely, a German officer came forward to say that it had actually been projected onto the clouds by the Germans, because they had far better technology than us back then, as a way of making us panic. But, of course, it backfired, and the British troops see it as a a sign to sort of urge them on. And, of course, we then conquered the Germans. So that was a panic that was certainly um, a manufactured-style panic. And I think there's been quite a few manufactured-style panics, if you ask me. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, look at, like, War of the Worlds. Exactly. I think that if you get it out again enough, that it, it can certainly start to happen. If you can instill that type of fear, we had similar things in the UK with like Quatermass, which was another quite creepy sort of film. Yeah. So yeah, I think yeah, definitely you can put that sort of thing out there. Um, I actually think that another manufactured kind of panic was Roswell, and I would go along possibly with Nick Redfern again 
in the I don't think it had anything to do with aliens, but I think that the U, the U.S. government were very happy for aliens t to be blamed because I think that it was something a little bit more sinister and down to earth that was going on there. Right, right, yeah. Well, that's a popular sort of theory in the UFO community in general that you know the government uses aliens for all sorts of things, like like kind of how we Definitely. said the paranormal uses aliens for scapegoats. Exactly, yeah, exactly. But then it, the, the, it makes it a little bit more worrying then, though, because then you start thinking, so what are they covering up originally then? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, we, we talked about how, you know, there's this long history of, like, the dragon and how, you know, it couldn't really exist and that kind of thing. Now, I'm, this may be, like, the most moronic question I've ever asked on the program, but what about the unicorn? Do you think that was something that may have been around a long time ago, died out, or, or is that um, something that really well, is... Well, that, that wouldn't be that bizarre. That wouldn't be bizarre right. because they've, they've found sort of... Um, certain species of deer that have got a central horn almost as a freak. Even some people um, across the other side of the world have sort of had weird fungal type of horns. So it probably wouldn't be that much of a, a bizarre thing. You know, I yeah, I, I would say that maybe originally there may have been some type of a horse that had some type of freak horn. Um, but then again, the unicorn, a bit like the mermaid, has become a classic sort of folkloric type of creature, but I've certainly seen far more exaggerated cases of weird creatures than the unicorn. I think that even if it was a completely fabricated thing, they maybe could have used their imagination a little bit more, maybe giving it, like they did with Pegasus, giving it wings or something, because, like I say, just having a horn on a creature is not that bizarre, if you ask me. So maybe there was a possibility there was once, you know, a, a, a creature with, with that type of sort of um, thing on its head. Who knows? Right, right. Well, it kind of goes back to what I was thinking when we were talking about, you know, zoo forms versus cryptids, where it's like mm. the stuff that we're saying might be cryptids, like the, the Tasmanian tiger. I mean, that's really, you know, it would be awesome if they, if they captured it, and it would be great and everything, but at the same time, mm. it's really just, it's it's really not that exotic in a way. Do you know what I mean? It's, no. So, and, and you know, the, there's stories all the time about how them, how they're discovering, like, new species of deer and stuff like that. So it's like almost like a good rule of thumb is it's like, if the creature is similar to a regular creature, then it's, you know, maybe more likely to be a cryptid than a zoo form. But if we're talking about, you know, yeah. some amalgamation of a man and an animal, then it's more likely a zoo form of some kind. Definitely, yeah. And that's what, again, is quite frustrating when it's put under cryptozoology. You know, you've got um, there are several reports all over, the, again, sort of the world of differing sort of creatures. But, you know, the Jersey Devil I find interesting because... Some people believe it was like, um, it could be like what we call the hammer-headed bat, which is a real creature with a very bizarre-looking sort of long head. And some people describe this, but other people say, we've heard weird screaming in the Pine Barrens, it's the Jersey Devil. Well, to me, that would sound like it would be a cougar. Then other people can say, well, it was a dragon, it, you know, had leathery sort of wings and stuff like that. Other people believe it was a folkloric demon, of course, that was connected to a mother Leeds going back centuries ago, and she had sort of a... The 13th child was cast off from the family and took to the sky. So it's, it becomes folklore anyway, but, of course, people still claim to see the Jersey Devil, but it's just a sum of many parts. All the, all the only the credit I will give to the Jersey Devil is that it seems to have outlasted more you know, sort of most other zoo forms in the sense I think it was first seen around sort of a few hundred years ago, um, with most things seem to be social panics for a very short amount of time. Yeah, yeah, well, it's interesting that, you know, maybe that goes back to the, to what we sort of were talking about earlier, about how America has a shorter history in a sense. That's why maybe the Mothman and the Jersey Devil have taken hold, because we need our own native monsters. <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah. 
Well, I think, again, we have a need for monsters, but I do love the idea that we're unintentionally putting energy out there and creating things that are almost chimera, sort of disfigured beasts. That, and it is down to your own interpretation. The classic experiment is if you can try, if you get a group of people together and you all try and sit there for probably an hour a night for goodness knows how long, maybe a year or so, and all try and picture something like a black dog, you will all still have your own interpretations of that dog. So when it appears, it will either appear completely bizarre as a hybrid of all your conjurations, or it will appear to each of you differently. So that is, I think, how these things are coming about. Now, I've got a good friend, um, Richard Freeman, who is part of the CFZ, and he wrote a great book a few years ago called Dragons, More Than a Myth. And he's also been to places like Sumatra looking for the Orang Pendek. Mm -hmm. But many years ago, when he was a student, he managed to raise a bizarre spectral zoo form spider. And he did this with a series of kind of conjurations at night, trying to think of this concentrated type of creature. And bizarrely, when he eventually saw it, he said it was almost like a flat sort of cardboard type of sort of weird spider that kind of went up the stairs, but it was big. Now, I think you can actually conjure things, but I think you can also conjure things in unintentionally as well as intentionally. So almost devil worship can conjure things because it's concentrated. But other things, of course, poltergeist activity are spawned um, spontaneously to an extent. Right, right. Well, the devil worship stuff, that opens up a whole other door of, like, black magic and, and you know, that kind of frightening sort of stuff. Where it's And it's interesting that you, we used to have a black magician named Alistair Crowley that used to live on the banks of Loch Ness. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a coincidence or not, but I know the first ever reports of the Loch Ness Monster go back to sort of 565 AD when St. Columba apparently drove a creature back into the lock when it was attacking somebody in the water. Now, for me, that could have been a catfish, that could have been a large pike. But it's interesting that, again, people then started seeing the long neck thing and now it's a black hump. So really, there's no consistency. But uh, who knows, maybe maybe the Loch Ness Monster is a tulpa as well. But if you start telling that to people, they'll start slagging you off because they're saying, well, I've seen it, I know what I saw was real. But then how do we define real in that sense? I would like to see more studies done on this on this type of phenomenon. I wish that Definitely. you know. I don't know yeah. why. You know, with all the science out there, I don't know why we haven't seen a serious sort of chance to look at this. Uh, I don't even know what you would call it, really, a phenomenon or uh, or what. But it would be interesting to see an organized attempt in the modern age to to do this sort of research. Well, I think I often call these things social constructs, um, as in another weird panic which Lauren Coleman spoke about, and it's quite popular in the United States, is the phantom clowns. Now, it's quite odd how there's several panics about phantom clowns. Now, phantom clowns, of course, or clowns in any sense, tend to terrify people. Right. I think clowns are amazing, but most people find them quite freaky. And yet, there has been cases where so-called people have been attacked or harassed by clowns. Now, I find it odd that it's a little bit, it's a Chinese whisper, it's an urban legend. I remember when I used to go to school, we used to have legends of what were called the Chelsea Smilers. And we was told that a group of so-called football or soccer hooligans would be hanging around the school after school time had finished and they would be waiting for us kids to go out. And what they would do, they would be slashing us across, across the mouth with their razors. Oh, God. 
and then they would knee you in the groin to make you scream and split your mouth. But these people didn't exist. But it's panic. That's terrifying. A bit, like, a bit like the mad gasser of Mattoon in Illinois. People were saying they was being gassed. We've got another one called the Halifax Slasher. In the 70s in Yorkshire, in England, people said they were being attacked by a razor-welding maniac. Is it any different to spring Jack? I don't think it is. Is it anything different to phantom clowns? No. They don't exist, but they become a syndrome. They become a panic. And the more you believe in it, it starts to happen. Bunny Man was another one. You've got the Bunny Man Bridge in the United States, in uh, Fairfax, uh, Virginia, I believe it is. And there's this legend that there's this... It's either a giant rabbit or it's a man covered in bizarre animal skins. And, of course, this story over years has been passed down by teenagers around roaring campfires. They go out at night and get a bit drunk. And they say, if you don't behave, the bunny man, bunny man will come and get you. So it's a local boogeyman. But interestingly, sort of going back to sort of uh, the 1970s, I believe, there was actually was actually a man dressed up in a bunny suit running around the, sort of the, the backwoods chasing people, telling them to get off his land. So some of these things do spawn from actual facts. Right, right. starts out where it's like one isolated incident and the story kind of gets passed down yeah. along. And hmm. But the boogeyman is always there, you know. You know, Santa Claus is a boogeyman. If you don't behave at Christmas, he won't bring you any presents. The tooth fairy, you leave a, a tooth under your pillow and the tooth fairy comes in your bedroom of a night, leaves you a penny or whatever and takes your tooth away. We've got the Sandman. The Sandman comes at night and he sprinkles sand in your eyes. Are they any different to Goatman and Mothman? That's the question, yeah. That's the, you know, that's... that's. And Santa Claus has probably got to be the biggest, if he was, I'm not saying he's a zoo form, but Santa Claus doesn't exist and look how he's become such an icon. We all know what Santa Claus looks like, but he doesn't exist. Santa Claus is like the human version of the dragon. That's true, and believe it or not, there are people who say that they have seen Santa Claus. It's not, you know... Exactly. It's not, exactly. you know, this isn't outside the realm. You know, I'm not making that up, folks. I mean, yeah. there there are stories of uh, Santa Claus sightings. So it really... proof of how something embeds itself into the local subconscious and it becomes reality or it becomes an icon that exists forever. And you like, like the dragon. If it doesn't exist, then where the hell did it come from? Why does it exist forever? Like Elvis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now, as I said, you got the book coming out on May 1st. That's what Amazon tells me. May 1st, 2012, Shadows in the Sky, The Haunted Airways of Britain. What else are you working on? What's it like being a full-time monster hunter? Like, what do you do on a day-to-day basis? Um, well, apart from writing, um, and I did lectures, um, I go out and do lots of group talks to everything from children to sort of, you know, certain specialist groups, wildlife groups, everything. Um, but I also... It can be quite isolating when you're a writer because you're involved in this sort of stuff all the time. I find it very difficult to find a middle ground. So, you know, when I was younger, I could write and then do something else. Although I've got interest heavily into sort of, I'm into music and stuff like that, I find it, writing is very consuming. And when it's you're constantly writing about this sort of stuff, it leads you into some very strange places. But I also spend a lot of time out in the woods as well um, regarding the big cat research. I was out... Um, Last Saturday evening, I was out with a friend and we was looking for a black leopard that's been seen locally. I've actually seen a black leopard three times in the UK and that's quite eerie because you're going to places that are generally eerie anyway. Yeah. And the fact that you could have a big black leopard sitting there looking at you and you wouldn't even know it also makes it a bit odd. 
But it's great going to places and interviewing witnesses and telling people about what you do as well. So it's a pretty cool thing. Yeah, yeah. Do you get a lot of calls from people who want to share their story? I'm sure that probably happens a lot. Oh, yeah, and you get lots of lunatics ringing up as well. It's all four o'clock in the morning, but you have to sort of take the rough with the smooth. But it's great. You do, you know, I've become great friends with people. I've worked with the police, wildlife authorities, biologists, zoologists. So the big cat stuff is really interesting. But it is interesting when you do get somebody see something very, very weird. And I've had a few reports, which is quite odd, of a so-called what we class as a Bigfoot type of thing in local woods and that's been seen about six or seven times and I can't understand that uh, and these are people that are very genuine I've become very good friends with some of these I've known a lady that actually crashed her car to avoid this figure that ran across the road so there's got to be something in it so they're the sort of phone calls that get a little bit you know quite exciting but they're quite eerie as well what kind of lunatics are calling you at four in the morning? I would, I would lose, um, I would you, lose you it. People, some people <laughs> just do sort of, yeah, prank calls you sometimes get. Other people actually do genuinely see, they may have seen a big black leopard and they ring you up at five o'clock in the morning thinking you're going to be awake. They think because you're a monster hunter, you, you don't go to sleep. Um, and they think you're out in the woods all the time. But of course you get people that are genuinely ring up. Some people genuinely ring up and they've just had a misinterpretation. They may have seen a, a domestic cat they thought was a leopard because... However intelligent people think they are, there's lots of people who actually don't understand even about natural history. Some people have never even seen a badger or a deer in the woods. So that's what annoys me when you get sceptics kind of saying there's no big cats around. And I ask them if they've ever seen a deer and they say no. And yet we've got thousands of deer in the UK, so it kind of puts it into perspective. Right, exactly. Having talked to you and having looked at the big cat phenomenon and, and having talked to Nick at length about it too, it's like... It seems like a pretty open and shut case that these that that these are real large cats that you know have escaped over time and sort of created their own little population. Do you foresee a time when you know that mindset will be just accepted by by the mainstream? I'm surprised that there's like skeptics of this. Like I asked but earlier I mean, why yeah. the media hasn't really got on board with with that interpretation. It seemed like that well, should the, just the be me, the only, Yeah, the media only wants sensationalism, and, but there are a few people out there that have tried to do more. The problem is at the moment we get in reports, every county's kind of got the beast of this and the beast of that. Yeah. Um, recently we had a bit of blurry footage of a black animal running across the field and one researcher said it was the best evidence ever. Well, it's complete rubbish. It's <laughs> terrible evidence because... Even in today's technology, you, when you go out walking, you don't expect to see a leopard, so it's difficult to get clear footage. I've got some good photographs, um, but the best evidence for me is when we find sheep and deer dragged up 30 feet in a tree and completely eaten. A leopard only kills in a certain manner, often with a throat bite, rasps all the fleece and fur away. Also, we've got scat, we've got paw prints, you know, we've got scat leopard scat you can tell it's leopard scat it's sort of nine inches long apart from a dog in the uk we don't you know we don't have wolves we don't have coyotes we've got you know rats mice squirrels sheep deer badgers foxes so there's nothing like leopard scat in the uk so when we find it we want it you know it'd be nice if we get analyzed but it takes a long time and if it does get analyzed nothing ever comes of it you could say this is proven to be leopard scat and you could show it to somebody and even if a scientist says, yes, that's leopard scat, the newspaper could just say, well, it could just be one animal that's escaped from somewhere. Right, right. Exactly. And that's the problem we've got is that people are a little bit ignorant. They don't realize that these animals have been seen a long time. 
and there's a science to this, there's a biology. You know, you can't, in the UK, we only have sightings of black leopards. We don't really have sightings of what we class as normal leopards with the, the straw-coloured coat. And that's because of the recessive gene. You know, black parents only produce black offspring. Occasionally, we have black squirrels in the UK, but it's very rare. But in the leopard, it's a stronger gene. We don't have, people keep talking about hybrids of leopards and puma. There's no evidence to suggest that. It doesn't happen in the wild. We have these weird crossbreedings in zoos, but they're freaks. So there's got to be enough black leopard, puma and lynx, otherwise they would die out. These cats only live until they're about 13, 14 in the wild. So an animal seen in 1965 would be riddled with arthritis now and probably have a very long beard. Yeah. So it's just not the same animal, and that's what people have got to realise. There's more to this than meets the eye. So what do you think the population of these big cats might be then? Well, there's certainly, you know, one leopard can have a territory of sort of four, you know, two to three hundred square mile. But oh, we're wow. finding that a male leopard can have a territory in the UK of probably 30, 40 square mile, and he could have maybe two females within that. We get reports of cubs. So there's not hundreds of these animals around, but there's certainly each county's got small pockets. But, of course, somewhere like Dartmoor or Bodmin or Exmoor, that's vast. And, of course, a cat can easily cross county. So, But we're not going to have a case of just, say, a black leopard in Texas then running to the other end of the United States to breed. So there's got to be enough in each area because you're not just talking about one female on heat doing the rounds all around the United States or all around the UK. Right. It's just not viable. So, yeah, there's no mystery to the big cats at all. But sadly, of course, people kind of deep down want it to be a mystery. And all the time the government or whoever don't officially accept them, they will always be folklore. But they will never be accepted because it will be down, of course, then to money because the government will probably want these animals eradicated. Right, right. Well, that's the... To, to tie it back to the zoo form stuff, that's the kind of idea in a way that uh, that frightens me as a paranormal enthusiast, I guess you could say. If, mm-hmm. if like, all of this stuff is a product of the mind except for, like, Bigfoot, the Orang, Pendek, and, and mm-hmm. some of these other animals, I'd be kind of disappointed in a way. You know, I kind of hope that there are UFOs, you know. I can live without werewolves and vampires, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's... <laughs> But maybe, but your hope will obviously keep you going anyway. So you'll probably never find out whether there are UFOs. Well, there are, you know, my my opinions is probably not as valid as anybody else's. But I just think we've got to look deeper and always go by consistency. I think that people say to me, you know, we've had, I've been abducted by aliens. Fair enough. But if you also look at the hag style of attack as well, it still goes again with the mindset and it moves with the time. So... I don't know. Maybe we just so desperately want there to be UFOs in the sense of aliens. But I I just don't think there are. Yeah, I think it comes from a place of, like, wanting to escape the planet or something. that's our need for monsters, isn't it? We've got these vast jungles in the world. We still so desperately want there to be undiscovered species. So we want there to be a monster in Loch Ness. But, you know, you've got to also look at it and say, well, can there biologically be a plesiosaur? No. But, of course, people want there to be because it kind of it's a little inkling that, oh, what if there is still a dinosaur out there somewhere? If there's a dinosaur still out there, then that's more ridiculous, I believe. It's just it's almost laughable that there could be a, a, still be a living dinosaur in Scotland. It doesn't make sense at all. Right, right. Well, I'll speak so, to... Oh, go ahead. Then, and then, of course, then to me, that makes UFOs seem even more ridiculous. Well, what kind of what you touched on speaks to, like, a, you know what might be seen as like a larger cultural crisis, if you will, 
that mm. in these modern times with the spread of communication, you know how they say the world's getting smaller. It's like maybe there's yeah, part of us that that wants there to be unknowns, that needs the unknowns. And, 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 and yeah. you know, as we're reaching this age where it seems like everything is known, it, it creates this, this, you know, internal conflict inside of, inside of the, you know, the whole species. Definitely. Well, when, when I write books, when I wrote Mystery Animals of London and, and I wrote Monster, I still write. I take a lot of inspiration from my childhood. I grew up with some very bizarre... I used to grow up... I was interested in the Banana Splits program, and it was all weird psychedelic stuff, and I love all that. We're losing that. I'd hate to think what the world's going to be like in maybe 300 years because we're building and developing so much that it's not going to be able to hold us anymore. So we have to keep looking to the dark corners, dark rivers, and the skies, hoping that there's something else. Yeah. But, of course, we've got a fear of the unknown as well. So if something does come from the unknown so if we do find Bigfoot and Bigfoot is an unknown species of upright walking ape or a form of man it's going to turn science on its head yeah it really is so if we find that UFOs are actually driven by aliens oh forget about it yeah that come from another planet then that's amazing and it's also going to turn science on its head then there's the other worry is like some people believe that aliens are already here and they're in cohorts with our government. Well, that's another also complete mind screw up, if you ask me. If there is no UFOs, then the government could also be to blame, which is another mind screw up. Are they projecting these things? If not, what if it's just to do with the mind in a sense and we don't understand our own minds? Well, then it's another big mind screw up. So we can't win either way, really. So <laughs> we're all doomed. <laughs> Well, I think if they, if basically, if they drain Loch Ness and there's nothing in there, then it kills the mystery, doesn't it? That's for sure. That's absolutely true. If we find Bigfoot, it kills the mystery. That's true. It's, a, it's the paradox of the paranormal. We want the answer, but mm. to find the we answer... We don't really, do we? Right. <laughs> it's very weird, yeah. It's very uh, it's very strange. But it becomes it's in us to an extent all the time. It's always within us, you know. And if they find one Bigfoot, will that be enough if they find one? Probably not. No way. So it will lead to another um, mystery to an extent because Bigfoot can't, it's probably not related, you know, they talk about the skunk ape and things like that and it's interesting with Bigfoot that we've got these all over the world so I think that, I, I hope there's a Bigfoot. I think for me it would be quite disappointing if there wasn't and Absolutely. I really hope deep down because at the moment we're, we're, we've got so much hanging on that Patterson film, we always will and yet sadly really there's a Patterson film it's so old now that it shouldn't really be relevant, and yet we're we're clinging to it until a hunter brings in a dead Bigfoot. And the worrying thing is, if if a hunter kills one, I'm pretty sure the government will take it away, and we may hear no more of it. Which, in a way, the government have kind of got a right to do. If a UFO crashes, why should the government tell the local UFO investigator? They've got every right to kind of take it away and do what they want to do with it. So it's always just at the edge of sort of our sort of psyche to we want it to be there but I don't know if it is and I don't know if that scares me more yeah yeah unbelievable stuff well we said here uh, Shadows in the Sky coming out this May what else do you have planned uh, we, kind of, we kind of talked about your everyday life as a monster hunter but what you know I'm sure you have a lot of stuff in the works so uh, what, I, be, I began writing a book when I was 12 called Cryptozoology in the Movies um Interestingly, I think about a month ago, a book came out called The Bigfoot Filmography. 
it's about it's quite a lot of money, um, but it's a guy that's a guy has written it. I can't remember his name, which is what I thought he's obviously thought was quite a good idea. But I'm trying I've been trying to do a books for twenty odd years now. Basically just an A to Z of movies, commercials, cartoons that have featured cryptozoology. Nice. I've, the book's pretty much done, but I want to get it with a good publisher. I'd love to get it with an American publisher. I've never had anything published by an American publisher, but I think there would be a more of a, a a call for this or interest with Americans rather than the British public because we don't really know anything about cryptozoology. We've, we've kind of got Loch Ness and big cats, and that's about it. We know what Bigfoot is, but to us it's too far away. So I think by doing a book on cryptozoology in the movies would be completely unique. And certainly even kids' cartoons and stuff like that and Doctor Who and anything that mentions kind of Bigfoot, Yeti and that sort of thing. So it's kind of done, but I want to get it published with the right people. Right, right, exactly, exactly. All right, this is the thanks part. Uh, just don't hang up afterwards, okay? Well, amazingly, we've reached the uh, the two-hour mark here, and uh, I've just so thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I, I think you touched on it uh, just moments ago. You know, just mind-bending stuff, really uh, – thought-provoking conversation here. I think one that people are going to want to go back and listen to a couple times around just to sort of wrap their minds around what we've been talking about here. So, I mean, I just can't thank you enough. I've enjoyed this so much. Neil Arnold, of course, the author of Mystery Animals of the British Isles, London, as well as Mystery Animals of the British Isles, Kent, and Monster, the A to Z of Zoo Form Phenomena, and Paranormal London, and the new one, Shadows in the Sky, the Haunted Airways of Britain. Tremendous conversation, Neil, and I can't wait to have you back on the program for further discussion on the Suzuform phenomena and really what it all means in the big picture of the paranormal. Well, thanks for having me on. As you can imagine, I'm pretty um, good company around a roaring campfire, also a local pub as well. Because all my <laughs> friends, my friends, we end up getting into these kind of conversations, and it can end up sort of going on all night. So, like I say, sometimes you do just need to go away and sort of have something to eat, or maybe just put a film on to kind of. Uh, to rest your mind but it's just such an amazing thing to talk about you know it's there's so much weird stuff out there so everybody loves a mystery absolutely and thank you once again for uh, coming on the show thanks a lot that does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 7 big big thanks to Neil Arnold for coming on the show and giving us so much time if you want more from Neil Arnold head on out and pick up his books Monster the A to Z of Zooform Phenomena as well as Mystery Animals of the British Isles Kent, Mystery Animals of the British Isles London, Paranormal London, and the new book Shadows in the Sky, The Haunted Airways of Britain. Beyond that, be sure to head on over to his website, zooform.blogspot.com, for more from Neil Arnold. Be sure to check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback, and since we are way past the usual deadline for a new edition of BOA Audio, we're going to do three really short emails from the listeners. But before I dig into the mailbag, I want to throw in a quick plug here. On September 8th, I'll be heading up to Maine for the Experiencers Speak Conference. And that's going to be headlined by Travis Walton, as well as Peter Robbins and Kathleen Martin. And as I said, that's up in Maine, Gorham, Maine, to be specific, Saturday, September 8th. 
beyond those three folks, there's going to be a lot of great speakers there as well. So if you're in the New England area and you're looking for a fantastic UFO conference, head on up to Gorham, Maine for the Experiencers Speak Conference. Only about 20 bucks a ticket, so very, very affordable for the folks who are looking for a fantastic and informative day. That is one you want to go out of your way to check out. And you can find out more about that at experiencersspeak.blogspot.com or just punch in experiencersspeak into your Google machine and you'll find out a whole wealth of information about the big event in Gorham, Maine on September 8th. Now, let's dive on into the mailbag. We've actually got first a response from Ben, who wrote to us last week offering to put me up in Minnesota and give me a tattoo. Here's what he has to say. I just heard episode 10. Tattooing is my job, so this one would be on me. If you take your cross-country trip, you most definitely have a place to crash and recover at here. Thanks again, buddy. Ben. So there you go. We solved the mystery of whether or not I'd have to pay for that tattoo. And apparently it is on the house, courtesy of Ben. Anyone with a suggestion on a tattoo, send it in to me. I'd be interested in seeing it or hearing about it from uh, the BOA Audio listeners. Next email comes from Laura. No hometown listed. Here's what she has to say. Where's Ann Druffle? You really need her back on. Please make it happen now. I've been asking and waiting very patiently for quite a while. Love all your shows, but I want Ann Druffle, and she's waiting, because she's told me so. Laura. I should point out that this correspondence actually contains numerous exclamation points and is written nearly entirely in caps, except for the word wears at the very beginning. I don't know if Laura got her caps lock stuck down or if she's just shouting at me. I do recall Laura has written to me before requesting that we get Ann Druffle back on the show, and believe me, I would love to get Ann Druffle back on the show, but there's only so much time in my days and weeks, as many folks can probably figure out, considering it's been three weeks since the last edition of the program. But in light of Laura's passionate, passionate request, I will uh, definitely try to get Ann Druffle back on the program here in Season 7, because I would love to talk to her again. Loved the Ann Druffle trilogy. For the folks who have not checked that one, I would definitely go back and dig into that one. That was the first ever BOA Audio trilogy, and it was tremendous. And I'm sure a return from Ann Druffle on BOA Audio would be awesome as well. So thank you for writing in, Laura. Thank you for poking me with the caps-locked stick and reminding me that the return of Ann Druffle is definitely long overdue on the program. Final email comes from Afghan Bob. I'm sure many folks may remember him. We read his email on the BOA Audio Season 5 finale, I believe. The episode with David Icke. We've done so many shows now, I'm forgetting when we did these seasons. But nonetheless, Afghan Bob, he writes to us, he says, I wrote to you a couple years ago. I'm finishing my fourth and last year here in Afghanistan. Thanks for your great podcast. I've enjoyed listening and learning. My wife and I will be in Boston late September. She has us booked for the Boston Cemetery Tour. Any other things of paranormal interest to see? Afghan Bob in Hamilton, Ohio. Thank you, Afghan Bob, once again for writing in. Obviously, thank you so much for your service. 
four years in Afghanistan. That's just tremendous and uh, really, really amazing. So thank you, Afghan Bob, for your service. I would suggest if you're going to be in the New England area for long, there's a number of things you could check out. Uh, a short 90-minute drive or so up to Maine to see Lauren Coleman's International Cryptozoology Museum is definitely something I recommend for anybody who has the ability to go out and check that out. And along the way, you could probably, I don't know the exact route, but you may be able to check out some of the Betty and Barney Hill stuff in New Hampshire. If you're in Massachusetts, there's always Salem is rich with a whole bunch of interesting paranormal stuff. And of course, down in southern Massachusetts, you got the Bridgewater Triangle that has a whole bunch of stuff. Although I'm pretty sure there's not really a bustling Bridgewater Triangle tourist community, if you will. So you'd really have to get someone who knows what they're talking about. And I personally would not really be able to help you out because I'm only vaguely familiar with the stories of the Bridgewater Triangle. Nonetheless, uh, folks will be happy to know I wrote to Afghan Bob, not just on my Facebook wall with some of these suggestions, but also to invite him and Mrs. Afghan Bob out to a nice dinner when they're in Boston in September. So hopefully uh, Afghan Bob and Mrs. Afghan Bob and Banal will be uh, dining somewhere in the greater Boston area in late September. Happy to uh, go out to eat with the with the Bobs, and I'm sure it will be a fun and enjoyable evening. And on that note, we close up the mailbag here for this edition of the program. Big thanks to Ben, Laura, and Afghan Bob for writing in on this edition of BOA Audio Listener Feedback. If you'd like to be a part of future installments of the feedback segment, here's how you can reach out to me. You can write to BOA Audio at hotmail.com or head on over to banalofamerica.com b-i-n-n-a-l-l of america.com and click the contact button or you can join up at the official BOA forum the us of e.com t-h-e-u-s-o-f-e dot com we like to call it BOA's paranormal playground the United States of esoterica you can find that also by clicking the forum button at Banal of America. Additionally, we are on Facebook and Twitter, so just punch in Banal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, and you'll be able to find me there. And, of course, you definitely want to like Banal of America on Facebook. That's actually where I got Ben and Laura's postings for this edition of Listener Feedback. So head on over to Facebook, punch in Banal of America, and you'll find us. I think we're close to 800 now. I'd like to get us to 1,000 maybe by the end of the year. So if you have not liked us yet on Facebook, please do so. It would be greatly appreciated. Up next, let's thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Kyrom, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. Since the last time you heard from me, we got a couple of new pieces up at BOA, an all-new Shadow of the Shinigami by Marla Pena, talking about how she's actually named after a famous Mexican contactee. Fascinating stuff from Marla Pena. And additionally, we've got a new piece from Richard Thomas under his Sci-Fi Worlds banner, titled Reflections on 
Ancient Astronauts in Prometheus. So if you've seen the film Prometheus this summer, you definitely want to check out Richard's Sci-Fi Worlds. Coming soon to be away, we've got an all-new Trickster's Realm from Regan Lee and certainly a whole bunch more from the BOA staff. We say it week in and week out, my friends, but it is the truth. If you're only listening to BOA audio and you're not reading the columns at Been All of America, then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a destination for your paranormal entertainment and enlightenment. Now comes the time in the program where we pass the hat around to the BOA audio listeners and ask you to make a donation to the Been All of America franchise. How do you do that? That's simple. There are two ways in which you can make a donation to Benal of America. You can head on over to BOA and click the PayPal button. That's right there on the left-hand side of the homepage. And right underneath that, we've got the snail mail address for folks who don't trust the Internet and want to mail in donations. Maybe you're listening to this somehow and you don't have access to the Internet, so let me run through the address one time for you here, folks. It is Tim Benal. P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866, and you spell Pinehurst, P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T. As noted, the complete address can be found at Benal of America, and as we've pointed out numerous times here at the end of the show, if you mail us a donation, please make it payable to Tim Benal, and not Benal of America, since my bank is anal and they will not cash those donations. And please include some means of correspondence so I can reach out to you and thank you for your donation. As always, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Benal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. On the next edition of BOA Audio, we have got an absolute barn burner of a program for you, my friends, and I promise it will be coming at you much, much sooner than this one took to get posted. Our guest is Kendall Carver. He's the founder of the advocacy group International Cruise Victims. And as such, we're going to be venturing into some uncharted waters as we learn about the truly troubling trend of disappearances and felonious crimes committed on cruise ships, as well as how they are subsequently covered up by the cruise ship industry. Kendall Carver sadly lost his daughter on one of these cruise ships under very, very mysterious and controversial circumstances, and he has made it his crusade to hold the cruise ship industry accountable for the many, many people who are affected by the lawlessness on these trips. There's a really dark underbelly to the cruise ship industry, and that's what we're going to be getting into next time on the program. I've looked around. Kendall Carver has done a lot of mainstream media appearances, but he has never done a program like BOA Audio. He has not ventured into the esoteric realm yet. And oftentimes, when you do see Kendall Carver on these programs, he's only got maybe 30 seconds to 5 minutes at the most to talk. Well, this is a two-hour conversation with Kendall Carver that is going to be covering tons of stuff. 
and it will truly freak people out and leave you chilled after you hear this program, my friends. And as I said, we're going to try and get it to you as soon as possible. I'm really hoping to get it to you within a week. So stay tuned to Banal of America for this episode. It will be a can't-miss edition of BOA Audio. And on that note, we close the book on this edition of the program. Once again, big, big thanks to Neil Arnold for coming on the show. Thanks to Ben, Laura, and Afghan Bob for joining us in BOA Audio listener feedback. And, of course, enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners, the people who put up with the interminable delays between episodes. Folks, this has been a hellacious August. I'm so happy that I'm looking down in the corner of my computer screen and seeing that it is September 1st, because I need a fresh start here. And I'm very, very excited about the summer coming to a close and the fall unfolding. And I'm sure we've got some awesome stuff for the BOA Audio listeners in the weeks and months to come. And I just want to, once again, thank all you folks out there for your support of the program. I hope all of our fantastic American listeners have an awesome Labor Day, and you'll be hearing from me very, very soon. Thank you once again for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.